Okay, let's start the show. For Thursday, February 27th, 2020, welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. tempted as I turn up my microphone or headphone volume so I can hear myself. I was tempted to start that off with a tested.co.nz because I'm in a .co.nz state of mind this week. Does that mean you're up at all hours of the night because you're jet lagged? Uh, that, that's part of it. That's part of it. Actually, I don't even know what's at tested.co.nz. What is there? Does domain resolved but project not found? <sighs> that sounds like an opportunity. Ooh, that does. Oh, well, I'm here. Norm's here. Kishore's here. Kishore, we've completed the trifecta. It's Battle of the Duo cast. That's those, right. Those two last week apparently got rave reviews for the for the duo cast. We're not even going to name who those two are. Wait, wait, wait. Because we're going full on battle this week, better than last week. It's you heard it here first. If you have to include the combo of last week, because when I think of the duo cast, there's only a trifecta. There's you and Jeremy, and then I came back from Orlando, and I did a podcast with Jeremy, and then you and I are doing one today. The math works out. Three people, three duo casts. If you add a fourth in there, then it gets a little more confusing. That's why I'm trying to erase it from, from our collective memory. We got to add another like three different combinations here for that to work. So last week did not exist. I didn't even listen to the podcast. What oh. episode oh. last week? Episode 539? Nope, nope, did not work. Well, well, well there's, thankfully, there's a lot to talk about this week. Well, first of all, welcome back. How, Thank you. How was New Zealand? You were at Weta Workshop, yes. as you briefly discussed on Still Untitled, mm -hmm. and, and we, uh, you were dialed in from New Zealand last week, I believe. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, what can I say? Well, if you didn't listen to Still Untitled, I'll give you the quick recap. Uh, Adam, Joey, and I did our biannual pilgrimage back to Wellington, New Zealand. It's every other year, I believe, uh, not semi-annual. So, uh, And we filmed something, uh, a bunch of things there. I can, even I can even say we filmed over a dozen things there. Oh, my goodness. Almost two dozen things there, maybe. Eh, I'm not going to make that have a promise. Wait, we probably filmed a lot there. Every can I ask the, got, yes. the important question? Did Adam have a chance to make something? Adam while got involved. He got his hands dirty. I have... Uh, we have some great video and photos I can't even share, but we are, of course, being very uh, cautious of what we could and could not film because they are working on projects that people won't see for a year or two sometimes because there are films that are in pre-production or films that are various states of production. For example, uh, we did get a chance to record a podcast while we were there. So when we chatted with Richard Taylor, Johnny Frazier Allen, uh, we alluded to the fact that like last time we were there back in 2018, they were working on Mulan and they had, you know, literally racks and racks of shields and swords. And when we were there, we were like, whoa, 
this is amazing. What is this for? And they're like, it's for Mulan, but you can't film it. And we didn't. Um, and of course, Mulan's coming out this year. And so we actually get to see that stuff on screen. Um, and so very similarly, they are working on things right now. I think that we can, I mean, they, they've made public. They are working, of course, on like Avatar production that's happening in that part of the world. So they're doing things. They've worked on the first Avatar, of that, course. That's exciting because I think my impression was that Avatar was going to be so fully digital that we weren't going to get some some real kind of practical oh, stuff. I, there's gonna there's got to be some practical stuff. I, mean, I, I, I guess that could have been a concern, but yeah. Uh, and then we did shoot some uh, evergreen stuff that weren't tied specifically to film projects, uh, and it, a lot of it's about the artists and their own. Uh, passion project. So for example, Johnny Fraser Allen, not only is he an incredible sculptor and art director, but he also has his own company, uh, Trubiter Games, that they make tabletop, um, uh, uh, miniatures and landscapes. And he launched a very successful Kickstarter. Uh, and so he was able to show us the newest version of his tabletop dioramas and miniatures and get Adam involved in playing with that. Uh, they're also, uh, have, uh, lots of modern, um, you know, they've been running for 35 years now and they have invested in a lot of modern technology. So they have a whole 3D modeling and 3D printing department. And, you know, if you ever get a chance to go to Wellington, go to the Tepapa exhibit because you'll see the scale of our war exhibit. That's the, the uh, large scale uh, 2.4x human sized dioramas of these New Zealand soldiers and um and nurses and other people who were part of the uh, Gallipoli campaign in World War One, and they made that exhibit partially with three printers that they had constructed themselves. These massive, uh, like what? ten years ago. So like, like this, or, you don't build three D printers yourself. Well, if they you're going to build at that yeah. scale, right? They they built like giant FDM printers when they were experimenting with that stuff, and that which gave them some of their expertise uh, to dip their toes in some more cutting edge three D printers. So they have a three D printing room with a ton of SLA printers. They outsource some of that printing to, to bigger manufacturing companies, you know, like in, in China, um, like do the really big scale stuff, uh, and uh, but they also are experimenting with printing like eyeballs, you know, translucent printing. Uh, there are a lot oh, of so incredible, cool. uh, incredible 3D printers that can use, you know, up to a dozen different pigment colors or even, uh, durometers. And, and so a lot of the artists that they've hired and engineers they've hired have in their academic life, you know, in their master's uh, studies, done research in 3D printing and modeling, and now they're incorporating those skills into their fabrication. So that's a long way of saying a lot of cool stuff, not just film projects, but things that you'll see before the end of the year. I haven't had the chance to go to, to Weta before, but I briefly interacted with a lot of the, uh, a number of people that have worked there, including Richard Taylor. They're always so generous with their time and just like the nicest people in the world, in addition to being some of the uh, most talented makers around. So uh, I, I, I sort of love it from the angle of uh, highlighting great people in addition to uh, the skill set and just thoughtfulness that they bring to the process. Uh, it's incredible. Like Richard... And his wife, Tanya, they run this company uh, and, and and they've doubled in size since the very first time we went, right, in 2016. And so they employ Holy over crap, 400 people 
and he knows everyone's names. Everyone has, he he knows their backstory. He's supportive of all their artistic endeavors. You have these people who are production coordinators and managers and leads on these projects who in their own time are world-class artists and, and champions of like body paint art or sculpture or, or have run their own business. And, and, they're all this big family and it is just so incredibly humbling when we ever go there because they're so gracious. They literally give us an entire room, Adam Savage and crew that we get to embed in and they're so nice. Uh, and like, it, it, I, I, I can't speak for Adam, but definitely get its big sense of imposter syndrome when you're there because everyone is so, so, so talented. Um, and yeah, it's, it was hard to give back the card key when we had to go. <laughs> All right, we on to our top story? Let's do it. Top story this week. You know, we should set up some type of like Wheel of Fortune wheel in the background for top stories for, for weeks like this, because there's so many options. O- only if we can have a bankrupt so we can just end the podcast right away. Oh, Wow. If we're going Wheel of Fortune, we're going Wheel of Fortune. Wow, that's a good idea. No. No, it would have to, I, I like the idea of a once in a, you know, one, one in 20, like, rare option of something bad happening that, or, or forces us to do something silly. But I don't think ending the podcast right there might be too aggressive. But maybe, maybe not, maybe like a Wheel of Fortune type wheel, but maybe one of those, um, like, lottery rollers. There's a name for those things. You're talking about like those bingo spinner yes, things? Yes, bingo spinner things. I've always wanted one of those bingo spinner things. I can like open the hatch, right? Like, you know, the, the wire door and you take out the, the ball and you open it up and he goes, ah, now that today we're going to talk about this topic. Your inner old is really coming out I when know. you're like, I wish I could just hang out and play bingo. Oh God, I went to the park over the uh, weekend with the kid and all I do is want to yell at middle schoolers. I mean, to be fair. Welcome to being old. They're assholes. But okay, so we had a lot of options for Top Story. We could have talked about the Xbox Next specs. Um, We could have talked about Facebook acquiring a high-profile VR company. We could talk about the impending uh, Model Y. There's so many things potentially talk about New York Toy Fair. No, we're going to talk about Disney. We're in a Disney state of mind. And there are big shakeups happening in the Disney corporate world. Bob Iger, no longer CEO of Disney. From all accounts, this came out of nowhere. Uh, I actually heard Bob Iger recently on the Bill Simmons podcast, uh, and he didn't give any hints that he was leaving office um, in that, you know, it's like an hour long interview. Uh, and so the, the, I was just totally taken off guard because by all accounts, things are going pretty well at Disney. Like we can say Star Wars hasn't lived up to expectations, but Marvel's blown expectations out of the water. 100%. They're doing really well with the parks. They're doing really well with uh, Disney Plus, apparently. Yeah. And, and that was such a big launch. Like Disney Plus only launched in the States late last year. It hasn't even launched globally yet. And in one of the shows on Disney Plus is One Day at Disney, in which it profiles different people who work in Disney, one of whom is Bob Iger. He's like the guy, right? Like, of course, Disney's one of those companies like, I guess, like Apple, in which the CEO holds, uh, it's elevated to beyond just the executive position. It's more of an icon, iconic role, a figure, you know, both 
big executive, but also the public facing figurehead um, that's tied so heavily to the, 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 the culture of the company. Also with Disney dominating the movie industry right now with the integration of Fox and, yeah. and all those other distributors, yeah, well, so it you, has a ton of power. 100%. Like they are the biggest movie studio by far. Uh, Bob Iger in his 27, uh, how, how many years or uh, actually, um, no, the other the, other guy. That's right. That's right. Bob Iger's been. But he's been there a couple he's decades. Been, he's in there for for decades. Like uh, Eisner, there was an era. Of course, everyone who grew up in the '90s and the '80s remembers the Michael Eisner era. If you saw the Imagineering story, you got a also a perspective looking back at the Michael Eisner era, and people, you know, remember that maybe not so fondly. And there's been some rose tinted glasses in terms of how we look back at that era and what he did in the nineties, uh, things like Lion King and the revival of the animation departments. But Bob Iger, if we turn, if we talk about accomplishments under his tenure, under his watch acquisition of Lucasfilm, Marvel, Pixar, mm-hmm. right? A lot of big changes at ESPN, even though he didn't acquire ESPN. But he came from that world, the mm-hmm. sports world. Uh, of course, the launch of the Disney Cruise Lines, the expansion of the parks, the biggest, the entering into China, which probably is the most uh, the not unacknowledged part of the probably the biggest biggest business hurdle was probably opening a park as massive as Disney Shanghai in in China. And then, of course, uh, the launch of Disney Plus, which is a big thing as a forward-looking business, maybe a big pillar of Disney, and the acquisition of Fox. I think if we look back at it, maybe it's too soon because it's only been like a day, uh, but years from now, we may look at this and say that Bob Iger stepped down at the right time for him because how could he have topped that? Well, he's also staying on through the end of his contract, apparently. End which of is 2021. End of 2021. So that's like another 18 months, as right? The, the, as Disney chairman, right? And so he's still going to have influence, and I think he's going to... I think that's also a move to just calm investor fear sure. about the announcement and just create a transition eyes, plan. You know, and, I, I think he, at the end of the day, he's... Yes, for all of those things. I'm sure he's going to be lauded for... Marvel and the Fox acquisitions, which seem to be paying dividends. I think Disney Plus has his name all over it. So if Disney's going to be successful with a streaming entity, that's going to be a big legacy of his. Uh, but also, I mean, if you look at where Disney Plus is now, launching it, getting it off the ground, that was a big hurdle. That was that was a, a monumental task in, in rights management, in in the technology. But it is not a success. Like I'm sure they signed up a no. pl- ton of uh, plenty of people at D23, and there are people who sign up for three years, like me and you. But it is not a Netflix. It's not up to the level of Netflix, right? Nor uh, nor should it be expected to be at that level yet. There's just it's too fundamental early. technical problems that they need to get over. I've, uh, for the most part, those tech problems have gone away for me, but I, I think people I are mean, very forgiving because of the IP that they have. They haven't expanded beyond US yet. I mean, so we can't really say that it's a success until they've been going for a year, which yeah. they haven't been, and like gone into other markets to see what the uptick is. We haven't really seen their originals come to, come to bear outside of Mandalorian, um, and so like all that stuff is still like TBD. 
but I think setting all that stuff in motion was a huge lift. Yep. And, and like yeah. he deserves a lot of praise for even getting it there. And like you said, he will be uh, still part of the company until at least the end of next year. And uh, according to Disney, leading the company's creative endeavors. So Simmons asked him directly if he was going to run for office. Uh, wow. And he, he kind of, you know, hemmed and hawed and kind of like half denied it. Mm. And I wonder if there's something there, like something in California or elsewhere that, uh, that motivated this. Okay. I'm going to go back to the West Wing because one of the phrases that Aaron Sorkin wrote, you know, when they talk about um, Bartlett, Jed Bartlett running, you know, for president and, and the job of the presidency, it's, it's the last job he'll ever have. Right. And, and it's another way of saying that once you get to that point, there's no other accomplishment you can have, really in terms of public service or in terms of having what you would consider a job. Sure, presidents after they, they become president, after their presidency, go on to found, run foundations and, and have big missions, which and things that would be equivalent to a job. But in terms of it being a job and the responsibilities, there is nothing higher than holding that level of office, elected office. You would think that at the stage where you are the CEO of a company like Disney or even Apple, you could consider that the last job you would have. Like, why, what, why would he need, what would compel you? Because if you're the kind of guy that gets that kind of job, you're, you're like Michael Jordan. You're competitive to the bone. Except Michael Jordan's a perfect example of someone who, after retired, did, that was the last job he ever had. Haynes commercials are not a job. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, when you're you never going to top that. When, when you I mean, look at Kobe, and then, and obviously with what's happened to Kobe, it, it changes. But he was rebuilding a whole nother career afterwards. Yeah. Like LeBron planning another career. Like people at the pinnacle of their of their area, I don't think they lose the drive um, to be at the top of something. Some of it's got to be ego. Oh yeah, of course. Right. Like if you're the the, the top of the top of you know, the entertainment world, then. You you want to yeah, and then why and then why not stay on Disney? Is there not unfinished business? See, I, I think there's so much more to this story that we're not getting. Mm. Uh, well, the other half of the story is who's replacing him, and immediate as of yesterday, the new CEO of Walt Disney Company is another Bob. It's Bob. Chapek? Chapek? I actually don't even know how to pronounce his know. name at this point. I've watched the news here, so we're gonna say Chapek. C-H-A-P-E-K, who previously, or you know, before yesterday, last week, ran the Parks Division, which was a big pillar of the business. Now, this is so freaking funny for anyone that's watched Succession. This is just amazing. Okay. I like, haven't seen the show. You haven't seen Succession? I haven't seen Succession. Succession. I know so, I have to. I have to. I want to. Okay. This isn't much of a spoiler, but like in Succession, it's a it's a head of a like a huge media type organization like it, it's meant to be like a Rupert Murdoch type that had a bunch of media stuff that's what I got yeah but he also has like a parks and cruise division mm. and um the person he puts in charge of that is like his like son-in-law uh who's kind of inept um and so like the idea and the whole battle is like who's going to take over the empire and everyone's sort of jostling for that job and like the parks area even though it's profitable is like rife with all of these problems uh and like hidden stories that they would like bury and it, this is succession coming to real life they actually appointed the person from parks to be in charge of one of the largest companies in the world 
it's hilarious because of that analogy. Yeah, it's hilarious. The photo they shared of Bob Iger uh, and and new Bob, new CEO, new Bob. We'll call him new Bob. Uh, is interesting because all the photos I see and interviews I see of Bob Iger, he's a, he's a cardigan guy. He's the casual CEO dad. And Parks guy, new Bob, buttoned up shirt. He's generic blue suit guy. Blue suit dude. No tie, says casual, not, not that formal, still friendly, but not, not cardigan wear. I wonder if he'll change his look. I think there's definitely a... a um, a role that the, the CEO of Disney likes to play. You know, whether you talk about Eisner jumping on ABC television, introducing Wonderful World of Disney, or, you know, those video, going back to, to Walt, right? Uh, I, I wonder if this new CEO will, will try to exude that type of family friendly dad persona, father of the company. If anything, it's just a reason to watch Succession. Uh, I, 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 it's on my list. Uh, so he ran the parks department. Uh, how he ran the parts department, I wonder if that had any, has any bearing on how we think he'll run Disney as a company. And a lot of people who work in the parks department or fans of Disney parks have a lot to say. Um, not, not necessarily great things. Uh, we all know the parks department, they make billions a year. It is uh, rising prices. The experience is, for the large part, very ambitious, launching the rides. Although, you know, some people would say a little too heavy toward the IP-focused rides and they did a big announcement like i love what they're potentially planning on doing to, to epcot as they're going to be revamping that um but it's less of the timelessness of some of the some of the disney vision and more of the 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 franchising uh and and because they have all the characters uh it's too soon to say about anything i think a lot of people were maybe surprised that it wasn't someone like a kevin feige coming up Internally, but he has plenty on his plate. I'm sure he's happy to run Marvel. I mean, this job isn't like a just any you pick anyone. It's a management job. Yeah. It's a uh, who's good with the investors, who can like storytell and set a vision for the company. Kevin Feige's great at making movies. We have no idea if he's actually good at any of that other stuff. Yeah, and he'll have 20 months from now to to still work under Bob Iger to to be shepherded through the role of of CEO. Uh, it doesn't feel like he's coming in with a grand plan and shaking things up because there's nothing to shake up. Uh, but you know what? We'll be under his watch. The, the launch of the Avatar films will be under his watch. Also, all the sports um, rights deals are coming back up. And those are mm. billion dollar deals mm. uh, coming up too. So he has some big choices to make. Yeah. Uh, the, we don't know what it means for for Disney animation, for Pixar, for, for Marvel, presumably those are machines that still run. And as long as they, they make money, uh, you know, it is a public company they got to keep their shareholders happy. Um, that's, that'll be fine. I think, uh, hopefully the departments like the Walt Disney Imagineering will get to still have their funding and get to innovate as they, they have. Uh, and they'll see the, the, not just the pure monetary value in investing in that part of Disney culture. Mm -hmm. On to pop culture news. Let's do it. Pop culture. 
You speaking, thought, speaking of yeah, Disney parks. We're not done with you, we're Disney. Not done. No, no, no. Already things are shaken up. <laughs> you got fake meat heading to Disney parks. Oh my goodness. This is a, actually a really big deal from um from an Impossible Foods perspective. Impossible Foods has has struck a deal with Disney start to start bringing their beef substitute into Disney Walt Disney World Resort and a Disneyland and the Disney Cruise Lines. For I've had plenty of Impossible Burgers at this point. I've had Impossible in you know different kinds of of, um, of formations. Like I had a kebab that was made from Impossible meat. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. And so like awesome. This is great for that company, and I think the company's making a great product. Fantastic for Disney. It's like a no brainer. It like adds a a new layer of of interesting menu options. It like beefs up their, (laughs) (laughs) um, their image of sustainability in the parks, which is a, a, um, ongoing issue they've been working on for a number of years. Win-win. One of the interesting things here is that, uh, I hope pricing will be consistent and it won't raise prices for the impossible food. So when you think of, you can go to a burger place in San Francisco and they have like the impossible burger, the patty as an option. Usually it's like a $2 surcharge. And Usually same, it's, you're paying more. That's true at Burger King. Too. Exactly. I don't know if they can get away with that, with the prices that are relatively pretty high already at, uh, at, at the Disney parks. And if you're on the meal plan, you know, they have to include it as part of the meal plan. I, and I think what I'm saying is that it, it could be a place where impossible foods can thrive because people can see it as a, as a, uh, an interesting option without it feeling like an upsell. I think it's going to end up being more expensive than me. Uh, There's no way a uh, way around it yes. at this point. So they have this like the, they showed a picture. There's a Impossible Meatball sub that will be at California Adventure. They're doing. Uh, they've n- named a bunch of the restaurants um, that it's going to be at. But I wonder if it's going to be a thing that people will, will seek out, or it's going to be a novel. I, I, that's what you don't want. Like that's not how I want it to norm- become ubiquitous. Yeah, it should be normalized. So it's just like another option. It's you know even like the turkey patty is it isn't as ubiquitous as it should be, but it should be like the burger or the chicken sandwich or the impossible burger. But I will be curious. I, 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 I like what they, the kind of food they serve. I like eating the food there. So next time I go, that's probably what I'm going to add, add to my menu. Um, under the Disney umbrella. Also, we got Lucasfilm and star Wars and he had big star Wars news. This could have also been a top story for this week, but star Wars Lucasfilm has announced a new publishing campaign called The High Republic. They released like a three-minute trailer that showed a lot of uh, writers external to Lucas and internal working together to craft new story concepts. And it's set uh, a thousand years before. No, 200 years. 200 years. Before Phantom Menace. Before Phantom Menace. Uh, Yeah, it's essentially when the Jedi Council was ruling over a galaxy that was peaceful. But what they want to explore is, well, the the area that they ruled over, the galaxy they ruled over, still had boundaries and edges. And they want to explore what was happening at those edges. And this kind of Western motif is how it occurred to me. Uh, and, And tell stories from there. They've already set up uh, some uh, villainous, like mobster type gang, it mm. occurred to me as, uh, and a number of Jedi that are going to be uh, working to either contain or understand um, this potential calamitous group coming to the galaxy. So this is not a TV show. This is not a movie. This is a publishing series. So it's going to be books. 
uh, YA and long form novels and as well as comic books from IDW and, and uh, the Marvel comics. Uh, and the art looks good. It's definitely the golden age of Jedi. So you could have a lot of lightsabers. Presumably, it's going to be Jedi at their most badass as, as we've seen them. Uh, and, but it is a look back. It is 200 years before. It's not pushing forward. And I think that's a safe way to play it because they're going to let the movies push things forward. Uh, and um, I'm fine with it. I mean, it's it's totally more world building. I'm fine with the world building as well. I also, I mean, I'm longstanding record of being all in on the Western motif for sci-fi being a rich area of exploration. Keep Did you see in, in that video where they had like a whiteboard where they had some ideas like, you know, kind of just spitballing from, from their creative standpoint, what things feel like star Wars, you know, and, and it's, it's things like force lightsabers and good versus evil and, and, you know, uh, uh, war being part of, uh, but not being pro war. And then like they had under like one column under wishes, dinosaurs. Really? Yes. Creatures. I mean, I think that was I mean, giant creatures, which I'm is something that I'm that. always. I mean, it's something that's kind of interesting. Cheaper that. to put in a comic book than on the TV show or on the big screen. So I, I'm, I'm, give me some Jedi fighting dinosaurs or riding dinosaurs. That's a whole new way to uh, a whole new part of the Star Wars universe. Uh, speaking of films, though, the is, is this. I don't know if this is confirmed yet, but uh, this is rumored news that there is a film in development about the planet Exegol. No, now, thank you. <laughs> if that sounds familiar, or maybe it doesn't, Exegol was the Sith planet the Emperor was hiding on in Rise of Skywalker. It's where he and his you know, uh, crowd of minions, you remember at the end of Rise of Skywalker, right? Like just this generic... Big yeah, super secret planet, thousands yep. of people in the crowd for some reason. Thousands, oh, not only Ticketmaster really sold some seats for that event. But, but also they, they were built, building those uh, Star Destroyers too, right? Who built those Star Destroyers? I feel like we're in clerks right now yeah. talking about this. Well, Deadline says they've confirmed that a feature is in the works from uh, the director J.D. Dillard, who made the movie Slight, uh, and uh, writer Matt Owens, who worked on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Luke Cage. Uh, they don't know if it's for the big screen or for Disney Plus. Uh, that may be a budgetary thing, and they may do some research on that. But it does sound like it's a feature, not a TV show. Although I think you know, I'm high, given the success of Mandalorian, I'd be fine with more Star Wars TV shows as well. Uh, and that's basically all the information that we have so far. This is, this is one avenue uh, they may be exploring the dark side. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Sticking with Star Wars, sticking with Mandalorian, you guys have to watch this. If you go to ILM Visual Effects' YouTube channel, there is a four-minute behind-the-scenes video about some of the technology used to film the Mandalorian, specifically a new technology called... um, What is it called? I don't know what the name of it was. Uh, the, the, it was on to my tongue. It's, it's not the holodeck. It's not the volume. It's... Uh, uh, Volodeck. No, no, no. Holovume. No, no. Uh, stagecraft. Stagecraft. It's a stagecraft technology. Uh, you pause right there. Pause it right there. Pause it right there. So uh, what they have is... Uh, it's, 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 
as opposed to doing a digital set extension that's added in post. So you can imagine the way a lot of TV shows and movies are filmed these days. They have a location and they set up giant green screen um, walls behind them, which can sometimes be, you know, actually um, either hung from these giant cranes or put on giant the sides of giant container trucks. Sometimes um, they just paint the room. Sometimes, exactly. Uh, but basically allows them to do set extensions so that they only need to set dress or build the front part of a set. Uh, in this case, and that's for external locations, in this case, they, are, they have a large st- uh, studio space, a large stage, sound stage, in which they've set up a... What's almost reminds me of like a E3 style or CES style LED wall. That's a 360 degree wall. It's what? curved. It's a large diameter. Yeah, I would say it's all. It's like 270. Like there's an yeah. open end so that like that. I guess the cameras can move around. Yes. and kind of have a point of view. But it's like almost full wraparound LED screens. And it's like 20 feet tall, and it's it is a reference. It's a big curve, but within the area of this this led wall they can build up sets and so they can for example if you've seen the mandalorian i won't spoil they have interior sets exterior sets they have inside the hangar of a of a, a, a big space station they have exteriors like um on you know desert planets on ice planets and it turns out all of those were shot in uh this stage using Just- stagecraft so what's amazing to me about this is, especially when you have a character on screen and that you have this background, uh, first, because the background is oftentimes like bokeh, like it has a little blur to it sure. and what, whatever, like you're not noticing all the, the, the detail, but it still sets the scene. But what it does for, I think, the actor and probably lends itself to a better performance, it, like, it gives you the authentic lighting of that scene being cast into the room. So they're capturing real lighting yeah. from those And they've been doing scenes. this before at a lower resolution and even in Star Wars. So uh, if you look at some of the behind the scenes of the hero for Solo, for example, or even Force Awakens, they would have the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon on a motion-controlled uh, gimbal system. And so the actors would actually feel the movement and in front of them, lighting their faces would be a LED screen much like this, not as big as this, but giving the actual, you know, um, the the light speed effects and, and the flashing effects as you're going through hyperspace. Uh, and if any of the Star Wars characters wore glasses, for example. They don't, but you can actually see on the reflection of their eyeballs, the luminosity, and that's something that, it's a practical effect. Um, Here, the LED screens are high enough resolution, and like you said, the cinematography is such that they don't need to be as finely resolved in the details, that they can actually have not just the lighting, but the actual background rendered, and this is the interesting part, in real time. Yeah. You, in the partnership with Epic, it's actually using Unreal Engine. Um, John Favreau has talked about this when he was in promoting like a Lion King in terms of, you know, virtual production, because he did a lot of the uh, pre-production on that in VR. Uh, this is almost like mixed reality because you have these, these LED, uh, these scenes that not only are rendering the landscape, 
in the background and buildings, but they're also, they can be tuned to the cameras and they can adjust. They know because the cameras are on motion control systems as well. They can also give you parallax. So it makes it look like the mountains behind you are even further away because they're slowly shifting relative to subjects and objects in the foreground, the practical stuff. Um, to make it look like a, a real sex. It's amazing when in the video they show the camera moving and the background moving in in sort of perfect harmony with the camera and the actor being there in the space and being able to react to that uh, to that environment changing as the as the shot changes too. Incredible. And the fact that it's built on Unreal, I did, it just brought a smile to my face. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it definitely, I think, allows for more sense of play for, for the actors to, to walk on one of these sets. Uh, even, like, relatively small sets. There's a, uh, I don't want to spoil Mandalorian, but there's, like, there's a scene where they're in a barge in what's essentially a tunnel. And that tunnel scene, shot, on, shot in this volume. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. It's definitely a video to check out if you haven't already. And I think, you know, it, it's something that ILM may offer other television productions and why not right and why wouldn't disney leverage this across other um other films like their live action all of their um live action remakes of animated films like uh i wonder if like a mulan could have used something like this well that's where the the producing and the budgeting can needs to be judicious right because when when producers are looking at how to fund or how to produce a TV show or a movie. It makes a lot of sense for TV, absolutely, because they need to spend money in the right places and there's and they don't have the budgets of a feature film. And uh, using the technology, they can have an order of magnitude more locations than they would have and better looking locations than they would have without the technology if they had to go and do travel and spend time on set. So it would absolutely change uh, the making of a show like a Game of Thrones, right? But at the same time, you also want to be in Iceland and you want to be in, in Ireland. You want to be filming because you're not going to get, you know, the, the majesty and the beauty of real, a real seaside cliff or filming in New Zealand. These right? are still like 15 foot, 20 foot screens. Like they have limited. They, they, there are limits yeah. for sure. And the limits not only to the, the type of landscapes, but also the way you shoot around them. They're for tight shots, right? You're not going to get a sweeping shot with this. We can only pull the camera so far back using this. Um, so they're grid for framing for television. And then if you do have the money also, you know, a lot of directors just want to, and you have the soundstage. If you look at the, some of the behind the scenes stuff for, for Rise of Skywalker, you know, the, uh, the rebel base, the resistance base was all in the soundstage and they built out that forest. And sometimes if you have the money, they just want to build it out because, you can have an extra density, an extra layering of real practical ships and, and people walking around. And, and you know, it, it's, I'm not saying that this technology isn't, can't replace that. I'm saying that they got to use it judiciously and it all, ends up all being about money, about budgets and what you can save. But I do think that it does open doors for a lot of television productions in this, in, in this scale of budgeting. You know, if you're talking about, 10 to 100 million for, for 10 episodes, uh, as opposed to two and a half hours of, 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 uh, of cinema, um, to really go expansive. Cause TV shows, you want to go, you want to go in a lot of places. Uh, you don't want to be stuck on the same, same four sets. And we'll talk about Picard. <laughs> Picard definitely did not use this. Let's put it that way. Um, 
Sticking with Mandalorian, New York uh, Toy Fair is going on this week. And Mandalorian, and specifically the child, Baby Yoda, it's everywhere. So whereas uh, perhaps Disney had a missed opportunity, maybe this is why Bob Iger's leaving. Maybe maybe oh, he no. saw it as a personal failure that he couldn't get the child merchandise out in time for the launch of the Mandalorian. Unanticipated uh, f- success. You know, I woke up the the other day, like last week, and sometimes I just watch the morning shows before I head out to work. Yeah. And I turned on Good Morning America and they had like a freaking half hour About dedicated the, to Baby Yoda toys. At, at New York Toy Fair? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that's it was nuts. all of New York Toy Fair. So a few highlights from New York Toy Fair. And these are, this is a, a industry showcase. It's like the CES of toys. I, I really want to go one of these years. And Lego is there. You have the Hasbros, the Kenners. You have the, you have even some of the more boutique and, and some of the lesser known toy companies do. And they're, they're pitching the retailers or pitching distributors and they're showing prototypes of things that may not hit store shelves or go online until the holiday season. So it really feels like a, a CES, uh, pre, early look at some of these uh, toys and Mandalorian wise there's a Razor Crest RC plane there's um oh there's a uh, Baby Yoda Lego right Razor Crest Lego there's floating Baby Yodas uh, on on levitating um bassinets there's an animatronic baby yoda i don't know if sideshow collectibles was there with their 350 dollars life-size one-to-one scale of baby yoda but i did get an email from them this morning saying that it crashed their site when that launched and so they are way backlogged orders they're going to have delivery and shipments so if you got in on that early you would probably get yours this much is, earlier this is too far there's so much commercialism tied to this uh are you scrolling through some pictures? Yeah. Yeah. The Razor Crest, the Razor Crest stuff looks good. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you have a typical Marvel toys and DC toys. Uh, one cool thing. Oh, there's a, a cyber truck that was shown an RC cyber truck. Yeah. From Hasbro. I from believe. Hot Wheels. Hot Wheels. Sorry. They even have a decal for the smash window. <laughs> Not bad. Why? Would buy. Why would you buy that? I would buy. Because I'm not going to buy. A like, real are you the truck. type of person that would buy like the Jason Sudeikis Stormtrooper in no. a Baby Yoda? No, 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 no. Oh. I'm not, no. But the Cybertruck, I think, is novel enough that that intersects enough of our interests here: electric cars, RC technologies, toys. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to spend a. You know, I'm not going to buy a Cybertruck. But having the Cybertruck RC car hmm, would buy. They had retro handheld games mm-hmm. uh, coming out. Uh, uh, G.I. Joe reissued some six inch classic figures. There's yep. some great ones. Here's the Cybertruck with the decal on it. It's, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I, re- I really want to go. Uh, Jason Freeney, uh, from Tested, posted uh, a video on Instagram from a, a company that has a robot inflatable balloon dog. So you know those balloon dogs that are, that are oh, there's one behind us. Um, he did a, it's one of Toy of the Year a couple of years ago. This was his anatomical dissection of the balloon dog, and it's, it's lovely. You're a big fan of so I'm his. I'm a huge fan, uh, but there's going to be an RC one in which that dog comes alive. It's all, you know classic red, uh, and I'm, I'm, that one I'm definitely going to get for sure. Um, okay, a uh, couple last things. Let's see. Mandalorian-wise, Jon Favreau tweeted out a hint 
This is the coolest thing ever. So in January, Phil Twip Tippett, creature creator, stop motion wizard, like effects legend. legend, said that he wants to work on the Mandalorian. No, no, love he didn't to get say back that. on board, get his hands dirty with them. He said, "Congrats, first of all." And, and, and this was just an adoration tweet to John Favreau about the Mandalorian. And then a couple days ago, John Favreau says he's a huge fan, and they're on set now talking about how exciting it would be to see Phil Tippett's work on the Mandalorian. Why would yes. he say that if it wasn't yes. going to happen? Yes, do it. Do it. Make it happen. Make <laughs> it, it so. That would be unbelievable to see that happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no offense to the creature work that's been in the Mandalorian so far, but I would love to see a weirder. Phil Tippett flair. Hey, especially with where we think the Mandalorian is going to end up on other worlds in season two. Yeah. Give me Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett is weird. Like, let's just like, he's a legend. He's brilliant. All of those things. He makes weird stuff. And like, that's what I kind of, I want that infusion of just like a little bit of edge into the Mandalorian. And I think that's what he can bring. I think that's kind of what Werner Herzog brought in in season one. He was kind of strange and people really loved it. So yeah, keep doing this. Uh, Fun stuff. Um, Fun, really fun video. Uh, Also a friend of Tested, Adam Woodworth, who works at Google X. He's the guy who on his spare time uh, makes Star Wars themed RC drones planes gliders you shot also, videos with yeah him, right? he did the uh, the tiny uh, did the conversion of the uh, luke land speeder um that gave it a uh, uh, the razor uh, go-kart feel uh with drifting a drifting land speeder which is one of the best builds he uh has made his version of an rc uh, razor crest from the mandalorian as well and there's a really fun video of him flying it around looks great so good job, Adam. And I uh, hope to see you. Oh, we won't see a Maker Fair because there's no Maker Fair this year. But hope to see you soon and, and catch up. Uh, and then uh, last bit of Star Wars stuff. Going back to parks again. Kishore, have you, done, you haven't done Smuggler's Run yet, right? No. Well, first of all, there's new Smuggler's Run. You can actually get fast pass access to it now. Now the rise of the resistance is so heavily it's, it's so heavily impacted they're allowing fast pass access you can book it make reservations ahead of time you don't have to actually wait in line that's great for people wanting to do smugglers run and fans have now discovered that there's a way to unlock a special chewy mode on smugglers run and th- this is like full on up up down down left right left right yes. ab start also rip the creator of the konami code passed away yes. this morning yeah so very topical Thank you, Kishore. So much going on this week. Uh, but the Chewy mode replaces uh, some of the verbal cues you get from uh, the, the animatronic Hondo character uh, with Chewy. Chewy yells at you during the entire ride. You literally have to have everyone in the cockpit working together to hit a series of buttons in the right order, in That's the right, right timing. And hold the levers activate. at a certain point. If you miss it, then you don't get uh, the the Chewy mode. Um and you have to do it before the cast member finishes checking your seatbelts and hits the OK button in the back. Uh, how somebody discovered this, I will never know. I have no idea. There are videos of it on YouTube if you don't want to use your Smuggler's Run run on Chewy mode. If you want to get the pure experience, so you can just watch the video. But don't spoil the experience for yourself. 
Uh, last couple bits, TV news. Westworld has a new season three trailer. And the only thing I'll say about that is I have decided not to watch it. I haven't watched it either. I, I don't want to know because of where the last season ended. I feel like anything is going to be a massive spoiler. I'm a massive fan of this show. And I think, unfortunately, I cannot help myself with the scrutinizing of the mystery. These are the... You're uh, one of those Reddit people. That I help. am. I am. I'm one of those people who, if I watch the trailer, I know immediately I would be on Reddit uh, and reading the theories. And I think for this show, I have to force myself. And I might not follow through. I may, I may give in. But I'm going to try my best to, follow, uh, to, to not dive down and read spoilers. Because as I learned with Watchmen, and also, to some extent, Westworld Season 2, I don't, I don't think anyone guessed the big plot twists in Westworld season two, but people definitely guessed all the twists with Watchmen. I would enjoy this show more if I did not, if I went in cold and it's going to be tough because it's not a show you binge. It's a show that comes out week to week. And there are seven days between each episode that tempt me into diving into the subreddits. I think you're just going to have to block Reddit for, or just unsubscribe to that subreddit specifically. That's the first step. Admitting you have a problem. Oh, uh, more television news. BattleBots is coming back, and there's going to be 50 hours of BattleBots I, this I'm, year. I'm both excited about this because my kid and I are really into BattleBots. We watch it pretty religiously. Uh, we even built some like mini BattleBots uh, this year, like kind of inspired of because of the show. 50 hours is intense for what you know, really has been like a three day competition, like in terms of like what the actual the production yeah. production it's is. It's going to be like, a lot more. It feels so they a lot must more have to extend yeah. uh, what some of the production is. I, I'm, I'm all for this. If they maintain the number of fights per episode, because that's what like, as long as you have like three fights per episode, uh, I I'm in, and uh, they, the show has gotten progressively better, too, in terms of the depth of content they provide. So I'm super psyched about this. Uh, it will be 80 robots from dozens, uh, a dozen countries, so a large international uh, contingent of competitors this year. And uh, you'll have fan favorites like Tombstone and Witch Doctor, Lockjaw is coming back. So... Very excited for that. Full disclaimer, the uh, company that runs us also produces this show, which uh, is why we've been able to go on set in the past, and hopefully we'll have that same opportunity for this season. No promises, but maybe promises. Okay, one last story before the big story. Okay. 25th anniversary of Star Trek Voyager is coming up, and we got news this morning that the group that helped produce the DS9 documentary that Norm and I loved. Love. We went Love. to the, we saw this in theaters. Uh, and I've I've watched it since again. Mm-hmm. Holds up. Uh, is now producing a documentary on Voyager. Now, I'm of multiple minds about this because one, I really love anything that looks back at the production of a Star Trek show. I wasn't always the biggest fan of those the numerous documentaries about Star Trek fan culture. Like, I, I don't think they encapsulated everything I, I, I felt about Star Trek, but I, I'm also just more fan of like the behind the scenes stuff. And growing up in the in the 90s and 
reading Star Trek, the uh, uh, Star Trek magazine, the fan magazine, um, Star, Trek, Star Trek Communicator was the name of the magazine, and going to the conventions, like you got rare tidbits, and those are things in Starlog magazine and and Cinema Fantastique, like like the those behind the scenes stories uh, were what stuck with me pre internet days, um, and so to have a more elaboration on the making of Voyager, I would love because. I'm still a fan of the show. Not my favorite of the Star Trek shows, but still, I grew up with it. And I watch every episode. Um, Part of the hook for the DS9 doc is that they remastered scenes. Yes. And I'm wondering if they're going to have that same approach with Voyager. But I think I might be wrong in this. Please don't pillar me. Uh, that some of the later seasons of Voyager were were shot in HD. HD. I'm not sure about that okay. either. I definitely didn't have an HD TV. Back then, no. so I only saw. It I mean, in, the last one aired in like 2001, so maybe not. Uh, but anyways, the uh, I hope if they have the ability to remaster scenes like they did for DS9, I think that would be epic. Uh, especially some of the battles they had with the Borg in that. Yeah, I mean, that's not that more the money I want them to. That's not where I want them to spend their time and effort. It'd be great to see a scene. Like, because what they chose for the DS9 documentary was an amazing, amazing battle scene, one of the best battle scenes in Star Trek. I just don't know if that crew, the actors, have the same relationship that the cast of TNG and DS9 did, which made those stories that much interesting. That much more interesting. I feel the urgency around this from the perspective of, like, we lost two cast members for DS9 this past year. They passed away, and you know, like just, you know, normal course of life. Like, and so I hope they capture the interviews, even if they aren't able to release a documentary, you know, this year. And Voyager, to be honest, wasn't as groundbreaking as either of those shows. No. Right. Uh, and it actually has the, the, the production was mired in more controversy. They, they, got rid of a cast member and then they almost got rid of the the cast member they got rid of was not the one they originally were going to get rid of. And they brought in, you know, Jerry Ryan, which was controversial at the time, even among the cast themselves. And so like, I don't know if it's the, the, what approach they'll have and how honest they'll be in, in making this documentary, which gives me some pause about it, even though I'm excited to hear those stories and, and see it whenever it comes out. All right, on to the big news. The big news that was announced last week while you were in New Zealand and Adam talked about briefly is that uh, Silicon Valley Valley Comic Con, now Silicon, has a new creative director by the name of Adam Savage. You know that guy? I've heard of him, Um, which is just, it's beyond exciting. Uh, I'll editorialize for a second because I know... Like, I haven't seen Adam since you guys come back from New Zealand. I hadn't heard about any of this stuff. I read about it in the newspaper just like everyone else. Uh, I'm excited about it because Adam clearly cares about cosplay, clearly cares about maker culture, clearly cares about science. He clearly cares about the interface of of science and tech in science fiction. Uh, Things that Silicon Valley Comic Con was designed to... Uh, to really explore the interfaces of. And if Adam can really bring like even more richness to those areas, like my, my mind is already exploding. So I'm going to ask you a couple directed questions. Okay. As somebody that doesn't know anything about this. I don't know much about it either. I mean, do you think tested is going to be involved? I mean, we'll be there. Yeah. 100%. Yes. Involved in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, What would you hope for? Because you've been to Silicon Valley Comic Con every year uh, that it's happened. And we've seen it kind of go through waves. Like first year, first year of a con, 
always like organizational. Like, is anyone even going to come? Like they're figuring it out. Second year, like really like kind of started to settle in third year, kind of shifted their direction a little bit. What are you hoping for in this year? And more interactive, interactive pavilions for people to the the maker fair vibe. Yeah. Less seeing things, more doing things. So that's what I was sort of thinking too, is uh, with maker fair being gone from the Bay area, which we're going to really start to feel in the next couple of months as you know, the, the first uh, anniversary of, of, of maker fair not being there emerges. That would be amazing if, if they can bring a little bit of maker fair into this con. Cause I think there's a massive opportunity space there, like not the same level, not the same kind of scale of maker fair. Uh, that would sort of blow me away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this this might be too far. I would really like to see, um, and I don't see this enough at cons, is people actually making props. Like not the not just showing off the finished stuff, but the process of. Uh, and you did that a couple of years ago, like Bill Duran um, was down and like making yep. stuff yep. live in front of people. Um, that's not always the most exciting thing watching glue dry some t- from time to time, but oh, you can so see exciting. some you can see some really hey, cool. If they're stuff. watching your own glue dry, fair. <laughs> Uh, where, where's your sort of, uh, uh, mindset about this? Are you excited? Very like, excited. like way excited about this? I'm way excited because it's also in October and there's a lot of time to plan for. <laughs> I'd be much like, excitement would not be the word I'd be using if it was in May. I, I will say I'd be freaking out. I'm definitely conspiring <laughs> with people to amp up some, some science stuff, uh, during this con this year. Hey, you have to run a, a, a October time frame science event. In a few years I, now, I've uh, I have some experience in this uh, sector mm. too. So yeah, mm. let's let's, uh, let's exchange information and 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 and, and as I say, back channel this conversation. All right, uh, but you know what I would love to hear from the listeners of the podcast. What do you want to see out of the con, especially people that uh, have been before? Because uh, I've seen a lot of chatter on Twitter about the the excitement of the announcement, but uh, I think now we should start talking about like what what do you want that to look like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Echo all of that. Now, before we move on to our next segment, I want to let you know that support for this week's episode of This Is Only a Test is made possible by TurboTax. P- people do amazing things every day, so it makes no sense that they shouldn't feel confident about doing their taxes. TurboTax believes that with the right tools and encouragement, people can do anything. Yes, even taxes. And with TurboTax Live, you can even have access to CPAs and EAs on demand who are available to answer your questions or to give advice on how to file, even on nights and weekends. So you can do your taxes with ease and confidence and never feel stuck or alone during the tax process. You can also rest assured that you'll get the best possible outcome, which means you can file your taxes quickly and easily and get back to all the amazing things that you and other people do every day. TurboTax all people are tax people. All right. Oh, another thing that could have been our top story this week. Uh, well, in the world of computer games or console games, Xbox. Phil Spencer made some announcements about the technology and the hardware that's coming in the next Xbox, the Xbox Series X. 
Now, um, excuse me, it's the new Xbox Series X. That's right. That's right. You can't leave off the new. The new, small, the new Xbox Series X. 12 teraflops of processing power, variable rate shading, hardware accelerated, DirectX ray tracing, quick resume for multiple games. And a smart delivery. What does smart delivery don't mean? Even know I mean, we can get into is. this. Like the ray tracing. Yes. That's pretty consistent with what we're seeing in PC games. And we're seeing more developers actually leverage the ray tracing uh, to produce like much more powerful uh, visuals. So that's awesome. That actually makes a ton of sense to me. That's a, a high co- performance cost. It's like, what, do we, what can we throw this compute at? Well, ray tracing is the thing that will make games potentially look better and give you things if you've played like control you can see the benefits of that on an rtx graphics card and and you know let's have that and then variable rate shading is about performance so higher frame rates a higher resolution uh and um that's just a, a different way of processing the shaders on a per pixel level um and so then, is that so the gpu doesn't render the shading on every pixel like every yeah, time yes yeah. yes um and, and not every they can prioritize individual effects um, is what they say. Uh, and then their new processor, which is AMD base running on Zen 2 architecture, has 12 teraflops of uh, graphics performance, which is twice of that of the Xbox One X. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's new SSDs in here. Yeah. I, mean, I actually I think, think this is probably fast loading is like fast a loading big, big, big thing. This is them, uh, this is the stopgap between. Uh, cloud gaming is fast loading. I think no one, everyone knows that right now patches, downloads are huge bottlenecks in console gaming. People have kind of accepted what day one patches. Uh, and so with better SSDs for at least loading and traveling in games, they actually can make fast travel actually fast. Uh, quick resume, something that they've had. And so it's just a new quick resume suspending states on multiple games, not just the one that's good. Uh, they're using HDMI 2.1. So it allows for available refresh rates, lower latency modes, and 120 FPS support on a console, which is new. So if you have a TV that supports it, you can get up to 120 FPS. Wow, if they're um, putting 120 FPS, like put a fan near Xbox. I mean, that's why it's designed like a, a PC yeah. with the huge tower. Uh, well, maybe not huge, but tower design. Uh, and then smart delivery is you can buy the game once, and it'll know whether you're playing on Xbox One or One X. So this is about the transition from current gen to next gen. So uh, I want to uh, ask about this. So like, is it tied to the account or the device? Like, I think that's the transition they need to clarify a little bit here. Yeah, we hope account. Yeah, we hope account. But they haven't really made that clear Um uh, uh, w- with this, like you, you buy it once you own it, which is what the whole point of smart delivery is. Yeah. And, uh, I think cyberpunk is a game that's announced to, to take advantage of it by it on current consoles and you'll get it for the new one, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's also hey, very much a PC gaming mentality. Do you care about the backward compatibility? Does that make a big difference to you? No. I think everyone wants to see that be announced. But yeah. I'm not convinced that a lot of people actually take advantage of it. And it becomes moot when you have things like Game Pass and cloud gaming because the, the cloud gaming kind of is always going to be backward compatible because you're just running a low, you're running you know yeah. emulation. Yeah. You're, you're running a stream. 
of something. I, I mean, they announced like games going back to the original Xbox are going to be backwards compatible. It's, I think it's now. a like, very, very small like, fraction of the yeah, audience. Uh, I'm playing Halo. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a this is a computer, full on computer. Yep, you're putting a PC um, next to your TV now. Uh, the one thing we haven't heard, which you have been harping on for months, is you're not going to buy stuff anymore. You're going to pay subscriptions to essentially rent things. I mean, so are we going to see that even more integrated in how Xbox push, pushes this console forward? I mean, they already have Game Pass, which is a version of that. The answer is both. They want they want you to pay sixty bucks for something, and they also want you to subscribe to it. Because frankly, games have been sixty bucks for a long time, and I can't. I mean, it, from a pure value proposition standpoint, there are some games that people will spend dozens, if not hundreds, of hours on, and sixty bucks is more than a fair price to pay for that. But from a consumer cognitive standpoint it's very hard for publishers and game console makers to raise that price because it's just been what it's been set for so long and it still is a lot of money for a lot of people i mean with what they did with the latest generation xbox refresh i wonder if they're going to sell a subscription model for this so you pay you know whatever uh 75 dollars a month and you get game pass and the console for and you pay that for 24 yeah. months or yeah. whatever yeah leasing the hardware mm-hmm. yeah i could see that too uh gdc is coming up in march or is it i mean as of right now still yes still getting those meeting invites we're still planning on going but oculus has pulled out of it Sony's pulled out of it. All the VR stuff is uh, much less exciting. EA is telling its partners not not to come. So it's a uh, it may be a very very downplayed GDC or ripe for all the weird stuff. So with Mobile World Congress being canceled, what two weeks ago it got canceled? Yeah, um, that's supposed to be going on this week. I think we'll hear about GDC probably in the next week, week and a half, whether they're just going to fully cancel it or not. If they don't cancel it, it is going to be weird. And it's going to be, it actually might be a really interesting one to go to because there's going to be so many less people there. Yep. Yep. And like the indies that really, you know, need GDC to get their uh, work out there or the panels, which can be really fantastic. uh, You'll probably be able to get into a lot more of that stuff. Uh, Like, and I'm not that worried about coronavirus, but you'll hear about that later. Uh, and, and, you know, one week after GDC is the release of Half-Life Alex on March 23rd. So uh, if I have any time to devote to coverage of Half-Life Alex, I would want to devote it to that in that time frame. March 23rd, Half-Life Alex coming out soon. I can't wait. Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll get to VR in a little bit. Uh other, oh, this could have been a top story also. Oh my gosh. Uh, big rumor out of the Apple world. Uh, there's a report from analysts predicting that Apple within the next 12 to 18 months will switch at least on their mobile devices, laptops, I mean, from Intel to ARM. The long-awaited switch to ARM processing on on MacBook Pros and MacBooks. Hey, so we have to go back probably like four years to find the podcast where you and Will were talking about this. Will's switch. been saying it's an inevitability forever. Yeah. He thinks it's, he has for the longest time thought that that's what's going to happen. Whether it's 
I'm, I'm coming around to the idea that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen on the Mac Pro line. They just announced the Mac Pro. I don't that's think what they I was have the ask, fabs yeah. to do like, you know, dozens of cores yet. And, but the place where ARM makes the most sense and the place where they have a ton of success is power and efficiency, which isn't something you necessarily care about with, with a, a dedicated with a, a desktop computer, but on a laptop, 100%. Uh, so I could absolutely see them creating MacBooks, maybe MacBook Pros even. And I, I think it'd be tough for them to do one and not the other uh, with much longer battery life, great, per, I mean, great performance, but with a caveat of compatibility. And would they release this hardware Without how much notice are they going to give developers? I guess is the question because they could do it a couple ways. They could if they're going to they do have this, they to redevelop the OS. Well, right? I think that's that's if they, they were going to do it, done? they would have done that already at yeah. this point. If if they were if they if it was on Apple's roadmap to switch to ARM from Intel, just like they did from PowerPC to Intel years ago, uh, they would have had internally not only the hardware pipeline to make these chips fast enough and, more, and powerful enough for these class of computers, but also on the Mac OS side, make that run. I mean, that's they have the money, they have the engineering team. I don't see that as being the hurdle. The hurdle is compatibility with x86 apps and programs. But the thing is, if they're doing the OS refresh, that means they have the infrastructure to talk to developers yes, about. but they would have done that at a WWDC. And so if it's like this report says, something that's going to happen, they would have to brace developers for it. Not just the developers they have great relationships and under NDAs for, which I'm sure they have, if they're going to do it, they, that's already done, and maybe that would be something they would kind of walk out on stage at WWDC to talk about. Uh, but they would need to make a public announcement for it and then give developers enough time to, to prep their apps for recompiling, for working on, on, on ARM architecture, uh, or have some type of of emulated compatibility mode, which is not which is going to be terrible, which is not the solution we want. Is there any way they do this with only part of the line of laptops? I don't think so. I think you have to go all in. You have if to go all in. Like which, you, the, which is that's where my skepticism comes in because I could absolutely see this making sense and them having the willpower to do the brave thing to do it for MacBook Airs and even thirteen uh, baseline MacBook Pros um, because they don't sell that twelve inch MacBook anymore. But no way could I see them suddenly doing this for those computers and not for a MacBook Pro. And that's where you're going to see the most resistance. Because for the people who have MacBook Pros, yes, battery life is concerned, but those people who are spending thousands of dollars, over $2,000, $4,000 on uh, basically their primary computer are going to want the performance and they're going to want the compatibility. They're going to want to be able to run... Cinema 4D, 3D Studio Max, Premiere, uh, not just the native Apple apps um, on those laptops. So we will see. We will see. It may be, you know, with the 10th generation Intel stuff out, out already and the anticipation that all the MacBooks will, at least for this year, get those 10th generation Intel chips. Uh, maybe we'll see. Um, and that's, that's, uh, I want to see a 10 nanometer process, seven nanometer process, uh, that will, um, that may be the last great year to buy an Intel based MacBook. If you, if you're in, in the market for that, uh, the rumor is that these will be mo moving to a five nanometer process for this, which is incredibly, incredibly aggressive. I mean, it, I, I'm, it, 
the speed is all, all about the the efficiency and, and power consumption is really where it's at. But it, like the compatibility with the apps is the real issue. It's not about the processing power at this point. Yeah. 10th gen is 10 nanometer. Yes, 10 nanometer plus second generation 10 nanometer. So 5 nanometer would be a huge, huge, huge um, improvement in terms of efficiency. Uh, hey, sure you watch Netflix? I do watch Netflix. <laughs> do you want to know what other people are watching on Netflix? No, I don't. Really? No. I, Aren't you curious I, at all? I, I saw this story and I was like, no thanks. Well, Netflix, doesn't matter if you don't care, a lot of people do care. And Netflix is going to start announcing and showing its 10 most popular programs and movies updated daily uh, in the app. So where I was interested about this is if they took away the top 10. Because I think this feature would be great for surfacing stuff that you're missing on Netflix. Yeah. Not showing you what's popular because the stuff that's popular is getting talked about either on social media or elsewhere. Like, I don't need Netflix to be like, hey, have you heard of The Witcher? It's really popular. Or like, have you heard about this show, Babies Season 2? Like, it's already pushing, especially the Netflix originals to me. Or those old shows. Oh, have you have you watched The Office? Yeah, I mean, like, I feel Friends? like that's already happening. So sure. this isn't going to be a dramatic shift. If it was like, hey, have you heard of this movie, Okja, that we recreated that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is amazing. It's a great movie, actually. Um, it's fucked up. Yeah, it's really messed up. But you know what? The, if you're from that filmmaker, yeah, it's going to be. But the point is, it's like, I, I I think that's where Netflix has lost its ability to surface gems underneath the surface in the way I'm looking at my feed. And I don't think this addresses that. Uh, Amazon, you know, those Go stores? I am a convert to Amazon Go stores. I've really? started going to uh, there's a bunch in the downtown San Francisco area. I love them. You walk in, you walk out, you, 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 you walk in, you use, you scan your app, scan your app. That let it like, track you. Let it spy on let, you. Please. All the spying. I'm fine with it. I love those stores because you no checkout. Well, there's, there's two things. Um, one, people are creeped out by them, so there's no people in them. Okay. So there, there's just less people in these stores than your normal, like if you go to a 7-Eleven or something. Fewer, yes. Selection is pretty good, and it, it's a wide selection. Grab, go, no pain of checkout. And like every grocery store I go to, that is the pain point of the grocery store. Is this better as in as a grocery store or as a convenience store? So I've been to a full-size grocery store. Uh, yet because only one exists, which is the story is they just opened, um, their full size grocery store in Seattle, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, as Amazon go, uh, I think I'd be interested to understand how, uh, packing up your items, how seamless that is, uh, uh, from an experience standpoint, like, are there people like near the exit doing that or are they just going as they go along and putting stuff in their, in their bag? What I like about these stores, it'll, it's not for like the big grocery run. It is for like a smaller set That's of why items. I, it makes much more sense from a convenience store standpoint. But I think grabbing that, a lunch, grabbing a drink, grabbing a snack, but not getting... But I think there's a tweener in between there. And I don't know if you've gone to any of the, the kind of newer Whole Foods stores in San Francisco. They're kind of tweener sized 
uh, grocery stores already. Mm. They have like most of the stuff, like this a full is, feature grocery. This is such Bay Area, you know, high high tech mentality. I love it. Folks in living in in, in anywhere in oh, the vast majority of the U.S., you know, who go to who go to uh, Walmart or Meyer, uh, like th- this is not for them. Oh, geez. Okay, here we go. All right, you call me Bay Area, which is totally legitimate. So here comes the. Re- the pain point of going to a grocery store is the lines to check out. This solves that. It gives you itemized receipts of what you're doing. My credit card now tracks better what I'm actually purchasing from a grocery store. It also encourages you to buy less stuff. Like, I think it has really? this weird psychological effect on me of being more thoughtful about my food purchases um, because I'm not loading up this like massive cart w- full of stuff. So smaller, smaller like runs. When, when I'm at Trader Joe's, I'm just like, yeah, throw that in there, throw that in there, throw that in there. And I end up having some food waste. I think Amazon Go is going to cut that down just a little bit. Wow. Plus the convenience factor of having no line is pretty, pretty massive. Uh, and the fact that you can use it as a return site for Amazon purchases. Oh, okay. I'm sold. <laughs> is it a drop off? One of those drop off sites? Yeah. You literally, you come in with your printed label on it and they have like. That's, you, the, that's the big line. There'll be a line for that one. Not at the Amazon Go stores in San Francisco that I've gone to. I know. Having been to Target, the longest line is the return line. Oh, yeah. If they can solve that problem. Because it's not a return line because you. You will print out your label at home, put it on it, mm. you hand it to somebody, they scan it, and they're like, thanks. So UPS store style. Yeah. It is amazing. I I love it. Uh, and it solves a legitimate problem. It's not some ridiculous, I mean, it's an over-engineered solution, no, no doubt, but it solves a legitimate problem. Uh, you mentioned one thing that they're not in the business of, but you mentioned the, the credit card, uh, the, the billing, and it seems ripe that if this was a success for them, that they would then launch a credit card for you to shop with. They already kind of have a credit card online, like a partnership with Visa, right? So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, and like to the people that are like, oh, I can, there are a lot of stories out about like, I tried to fake out the system and do this and that. Like, don't pretend that current grocery stores don't have problems with shrinkage. that already. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel like if their shrinkage is in line with what a current grocery store is, like, fine. I wonder if their uh, computer learning models are smart enough to detect uh, a 40 stuck into a teenager's pants. <laughs> <laughs> and just send an email to the parent. They'll like let the teenager walk out with it. It's yeah. like, by the way, your teenager has a 40. <laughs> in their left eye. And th- there's no there's no way they can sell alcohol that's given right. the alcohol right. rules in right. most states. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh last bits of technology news are gonna be electric car related, Tesla related. We'll start with the good news. <laughs> there's a lot of bad news. The good news, model Ys are shipping. March 15th. People who put their down payment in to pre-order a Model Y. This is much, given how long people had to wait for the Model 3, this is almost a shocking, I'm almost in disbelief, uh, which also explains why Tesla has done massively well in the stock market over the past couple months. 
Um, congratulations to those of you who own Tesla stock. Uh, but Model Ys are shipping. This is this is uh, it's exciting. I can't wait to see them on the streets. Yeah, I want to see them in the wild. This see is, what they look like. Uh, there were some uh, new images of the the uh, the back area, the, the trunk area, uh, and it looks like you can store a lot. Speaking of groceries, like the one thing I wish I had more of, and I'm not saying the Model Three doesn't have a good a good sized trunk, uh, but stacking things, boxes, uh, suitcases, uh, the Model Y seems more more fit for that at being a, a crossover SUV. Um, so uh, if you're in the Bay Area and you are getting your Model Y in the March 15th, mid-March time frame, and you want to reach out, my DMs are open because I'd love to go on a test ride. I'd love to ride one. Uh, and then the bad news, well, uh, there have been you know incidents where people have died with uh, in, in Teslas with autopilot and a very notable case um, for an Apple engineer who passed away in 2018 uh, on the highway. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board uh, announced some reports from their investigation, which uh, one revealed that this engineer had re- experienced the glitch that killed him previously in his Model X that in which it veered out of its lane into the concrete highway divider. Wow. Um, but also that he was playing a mobile game on his iPhone in the minutes leading to his death, which is such a bad idea. Uh, we're not about assigning blame or fault on this, but it does bring up the, just, I think the, misunderstanding currently of what the autopilot feature, which I think is still probably poorly named at this point, uh, is and does, and the sense of security. Because as a feature that I use regularly, and this is not full autopilot, this is just the free autopilot, I absolutely understand how someone who uses it regularly can fall into a false sense of security. And right now, none of the car companies that have this feature I'm not just saying Tesla, none of them actively enforce enough um, or make it maybe too easy for the driver to not pay attention. The nudging of the steering wheel, I think it's like a bare bones requirement. Um, And accountability is on is on the driver. Yeah, I am really on the personal responsibility side. Like I get that the name implies something that it's not. And that can change because it's really like a hopped up version of adaptive cruise control. Yeah. And like, that's how you should think about it. Like it's, it's closer to lane assist than it is to autonomous. It's smart lane assist. Uh, and so I get changing the name to emphasize that, but I mean, come on, like here's what, here's what I think would actually be useful. Not because personal accountability, 100%, right? Like if I've turned it on, it's, it's, a beta feature in some of its aspects, like I'm responsible for keeping my eyes on the road, for still being an attentive driver, for using it. But it's a feature that is so good right now that I could easily see why people are not paying attention or trust it too much. Right? Because it's not even about those rare off cases where, you know, like, something comes up, it can suddenly pull you off and you have to actually take take control of it in a way that you never would have to for a normal car. I mean, we've seen videos of people like sleeping with autopilot. They're terrible. Those people are terrible, 
Right. They should be, they should, they should never be able to I, use those features again. What I also think makes a lot of sense is a, a way to signal to other drivers that the feature is on. Oh. Cause they're for other, you know, when we're currently very small percentage of the cars on the road have, have that feature, but some type of light up cue so that other drivers, test drivers or otherwise know that a car in front of you or a car on the freeway is under the quote-unquote autopilot feature, right? Make use of those LEDs, that, some type of light-up feature. That, I think, would would help. It's going to be hard to get mass understanding of something like that on the road. Like, it, like our driving habits are hard to change. Uh, so understanding of new features like that, I would, I would think take Because it's, it's not even I, about the, the, the conditions on the freeway, like the, the locked-in physical conditions, because that can be, you know, the divider stuff and, and that stuff can be improved with, with iteration on the software, which needs to happen, right? And, and it's constantly getting better, and it's better now than it was, you know, a year and a half ago, for sure. Uh, but it's about the unpredictability of other drivers as well. And it's about peace of mind for those drivers to know that the, their, um, their engagement with someone in a self-driving car they should take into consideration the limitations of, and and, and be aware uh, of how to uh, how to engage. I think this is happening, but I think the the change I believe in is if Tesla is reporting when accidents happen, if autopilot was engaged to the insurance agencies, and then insurance takes that into account in um, it's like for minor in, accidents. Yeah, for making claims. Like, and if autopilot is engaged when you have an accident, that you have, the insurance has a right to deny you, deny your claim. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that would incentivize a change in behavior in the Tesla owner and, and econo- more and quickly. economics. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it, it's bad news, but you're right. We have to be pretty vigilant about this because the tech isn't there. All right. Science time. <laughs> of science. Okay, I got a number of requests from, this is only a test listeners, to uh, talk about coronavirus uh, and COVID-19 um, in the wake of some of the reports coming out of the CDC and WHO. Uh, and so I'm going to do that. I'm going to qualify it like I did the last time I talked about this. Is I am not an expert in this. Um, this is a time to listen to expert opinions like people from the CDC, uh, people that have been deeply reporting on this. Uh, from a reporting standpoint, I really ha- have uh, enjoyed the writing of Megan Multaney at Wired and Helen Browswell at Stat. Uh, they've done some really in-depth reporting and have some uh, deep relationships with epidemiologists, both within the CDC, WHO, and Independent that are fact-checking this. Um, and I think the best uh, sort of uh, last qualification I'd say is uh, something that Chris Hayes, who's a noted like MSNBC host, uh, retweeted out last night is like, this is a time not for punditry. This is a time for experts to, uh, to talk about this. Yeah. Now, that doesn't always mean like... For sure, I have a platform. Aren't I an expert? Uh, that doesn't always mean like just defer to expertise without questioning it, because I do believe that there is some skepticism warranted. What has happened... Uh, wow, a lot of things have changed since we last 
uh, talked about this. But I think the big thing that has happened uh, is what the CDC uh, said uh, just, uh, I think, two days ago when we're recording this. Hang on. Let me uh, knock that uh, note down. Um, and it came from, uh, there was a quote when the Center of Disease Control had a uh, press conference, um, and this is highlighted in a number of articles online. Uh, Dr. Nancy Messonier, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, who's the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, said it's not a, so much a question of if it will happen to this country anymore, but a question of when this will happen. And so the indication from CDC and other experts is that COVID-19 is going to come to the U.S. and spread here like like we're seeing the spread internationally. I have up on the screen, if you're watching the YouTube a um, what I think is the most reliable um, uh, real-time map of cases that is a, uh, a map from Johns Hopkins. Um, and they are mapping the total confirmed cases, the number of recovered cases, uh, and the mortality. You can see kind of the, the spread over time. The really quick 30-second where we are is while cases continue to be on the rise overall, we started to see a decline in cases in China. The mortality rate in China remains higher than in other areas, like somewhere between 2 and 3%. Mm -hmm. Some of that is attributable to... Uh, the mortality rate in Hubei province being higher than anywhere else, likely due to the fact that the hospitals there were overwhelmed and didn't have the proper protocols in place when the uh, when the disease first broke out. Um, but overall, uh, we've seen spreads uh, when you even exclude like the Diamond Princess, the cruise ship that had breakouts. We've now seen spread to South Korea and Italy, where we're seeing signs of uh, potential outbreaks in those areas. Uh, in Italy, the reason that the spread is, seems to be happening is related to insufficient protocols being put in place where in a hospital where it was first detected. And so it spread patient to patient and even patient to healthcare worker in those areas. Uh, okay, so let's back up. All that being said, that's like the current state of where we are. Uh, should we be scared about this? There's a couple things to sort of take into account. First of all, like all of this containment procedures, which are insane what they're doing. They're shutting down yeah. cities. Yep. They're shutting down the transportation of people. Uh, they're essentially bringing economies to a halt. This is a massive undertaking we have never seen in human history. Uh, so what they're doing is enormous right now. And all they're really trying to do is contain. This is the first step in a, in a WHO-defined response to a potential pandemic. They're really just trying to contain. Uh, the word pandemic gets thrown around a lot. That word doesn't, like, has a definition to the WHO, but, it, but its common usage is not consistent with how science agencies use it. And even science agencies use it inconsistently. They're not using the word pandemic outright because it has to do with the outbreak on multiple continents. Uh, but what they are trying to do and what the CDC is also trying to do with all of their warnings and messages is they want to make sure that if the outbreak hits a country that has, hasn't prepared for it, that they have uh, alerted their hospitals and they have protocols in place to contain it. Because what happened in Hubei was a number of hospitals weren't ready for this, didn't have the protocols in place, and we started to see the spread. And by the time they got the handle on it, they already had so many cases that they didn't understand how to control the vector. So if in the U.S., where we have very few cases right now, 
if the alarm isn't raised and hospitals aren't prepared for this when it hits, then we're kind of in trouble if it does show up. Uh, And so really their alarm isn't about us. It's to the hospital and uh, government infrastructures that govern these countries. That being said, there are a lot of countries where you can't even test for this. They don't have the infrastructure to test for this. Like if we look on this map, uh, Norm, you'll notice there's very few cases in Africa. And most scientists believe there are cases in Africa, but there are only a few countries within that entire continent that have the capability to actually screen for the virus. Yeah. Uh, And so a lot of what the, like all of this discussion that's happening is really about prepping the governments and hospital and infrastructure for all of this stuff, knowing that there's a bunch of places where there's cases probably in existence that we just don't have the the health infrastructure to track right now. Now I'm going to bring it down a notch. All of this sounds like bad and doom and gloom and all that kind of stuff. But this isn't actually something to be that worried about unless you live in a specific hotspot area. The most important thing that you want to see right now is people in your area area take necessary precautions to prepare. So I think this morning here in San Francisco, the mayor declared a state of emergency. And like that got reported on in a certain way. But the reason she declared a state of emergency is so that they could leverage resources to local hospitals to prepare for if it makes landfall here. Uh, and right now, experts are envisioning two worldwide scenarios that that uh, can happen. Uh, one is essentially uh, that this does um, uh, uh, go global, for lack of a better term. Like the cases are going to spread to every continent. Uh, there's a lot of epidemiologists think that that's going to happen. Uh, but... There's a lot of coronaviruses that are colds that have already spread this way. So it's just going to become a, another like cold flu-like um, uh, virus that sort of spread globally. But they're try- doing their best to contain it. The reason we are unsure, unsure is because we don't have enough science on this yet. Uh, so SARS, which is a very similar virus, so it was incubated uh, or the reservoir was in bats, uh, spread very quickly, had a high transmission rate. Um, and they contained it. So even though it spread pretty quickly to a, you know, a few thousand people and then had a high mortality rate, uh, and we think it's the kind of thing that could um, spread on an annual basis, we haven't really seen SARS again uh, in the last 10 years. So could COVID-19 become an annual thing that spreads each global year uh, that has like a mortality rate that's a little higher than than the the flu, but presents pretty similar conditions as like a bad cold would be. Maybe we don't know at this point. Uh, it could also not, it could just disappear off the map. And so everything right now is just to contain the spread because there's no immunity for this disease because it's new to humans at this point. Mm. So, um, I think the containment is really the priority. We're not in a place where it's going to be a pandemic, but by and large for most of us, um, it's going to spread as if it's like a uh, uh, potentially a cold. And I think that's really our worst case scenario right now. There's a lot of people sort of already resigning to that fate and trying to get people to um, start thinking critically about uh, how to, you know, uh, better prepare for 
uh, a really bad flu season, essentially. So like a lot of people presenting with like pneumonia, like uh, conditions uh, at hospitals. But really, this I, I, it's not a reason to panic. It's not a reason to to make like emergency preparedness kits on an individual level. What you want to see is your local hospital, local cities put in place protocols that if cases present, they're able to handle it properly because that's exactly what didn't happen in Italy at this point. A lot of questions on like global traveling. Uh, I think the risk for global travel is not about uh, contracting the disease, you know, unless you're going to Hubei province. Uh, even then it's, it's very low. Uh, it's about the potential for quarantine. Uh, if like, if you're on a, a plane or any sort of transport where this happens, the U.S., like especially coming back to the U.S., the U.S. will quarantine you. Like that is what's going to happen. So the risk is really about the quarantine and being stuck somewhere for two weeks mm. and not knowing what's going on um, as opposed to probably contracting the, the disease. I'm thinking about this. We, like I'm going to New Zealand in a month and thinking about it. There hasn't been any cases reported in New Zealand. Uh, I'm curious what your experience at, at airports was. It I mean, in, in Auckland, it was not, I mean, there were definitely signs about if you, if you cough, you know, and there, uh, if you notice, or if you are coughing, right, and you feel ill, don't travel, and people are handing out brochures, but people were not wearing masks, respiratory masks, and people were operating pretty much normally. I think there was awareness that was going on, but it wasn't impacting the travel. There wasn't extra screening or anything. Yeah, and so... In the same way we talk about the flu, which is not a coronavirus, but it has like it presents with similar symptomatic effects. Uh, the people that should be worried about this are immunosuppressed people, um, uh, elderly. Uh, once they're susceptible to the flu, they have a higher likelihood of getting the flu or really bad cold that gives them a pneumonia than they are of getting uh, COVID-19. Uh, I suspect I'm not like making a real prediction here that COVID-19 based on talking to like hearing some epidemiologists talk is going to become another coronavirus. Like, and there's, I think four that are widespread. They're mostly colds. Um, that's just going to be a thing uh, that happens. And it'll take us a couple of years to sort of catch up and potentially identify a vaccine if they can. Uh, but it's just going to be a thing. Um, and I'm, I'm really hoping that it becomes a very sort of mild thing in the way that we're largely seeing it now, as opposed to something that's at a flu-like level that, mm. um, that really hurts more people. So I'm trying to reinforce a message of calm here. And when you're hearing a lot of these messages come out of the CDC, um, they're not directed at, at you as much as they're directed at the rest of the government. Uh, and especially local cities. All righty. Uh, you got a couple more pieces oh, of science I do, news? I do want to say one, one more thing. And it's just, it's really fun and stupid uh, about coronavirus because we, we're, we're talking about all these doom and gloom kind of things. Uh, so we have to talk about something fun. So the CDC released um, a thing that's now making its way around Twitter about respiratory masks. Now, respiratory masks typically aren't going to be super helpful about coronavirus because we we still don't know how it spreads. We we assume it spreads through coughs and seizes. There's some indication it might uh, spread through poop particles, as we like to say, um, but we don't really know. And one of the things they, they put out is an information sheet about respiratory masks and facial hair. And oh, so no. as a proud beard wearer, uh, beards uh, can make 
a respiratory mask essentially ineffective, like the N95 masks that we heard about so much during the wildfire season. Uh, and they put out this infographic, which I have on the screen, of different facial hair types and which will and won't work with a air uh, uh, N95 type most, respiratory mask. Most do not most work. Most don't work. But what I love about this is they have names for all the facial hair features. Uh, chin curtain, which I didn't know, which is a beard essentially without the mustache, but you still have kind of like the middle soul patch connected. Uh, circle beard. I always thought that was a goatee. Um, the Balbo, the Van Dyke. I like, I've never heard of the horseshoe. This looks I've like a, an RBG. You're customizing your, your character. Like I now want to, I feel like this is a map for the progression of my hair growth. Now I want to try out more, most of these. Have you heard of the French fork or the ducktail? No. The Verdi? Like these have a <laughs> Garibaldi. These names are incredible. Um, so anyways, as a proud member of the beard brotherhood, uh, I'm mostly in trouble when it comes to uh, face masks anyways. Uh, all right. Uh, two other stories. Um, first, Smithsonian. Hey, Izzy. Awesome. This was, uh, you know, they've been doing this on a, on a regular basis, but they released 2.8 million images into the public domain. Uh, they have a regular cadence for releasing stuff, but this is a massive dump. Uh, and there's all sorts of weird uh, yeah, images in this database that anyone can uh, can sort of access. They have everything from uh, portraits of Pocahontas. They have images of Muhammad Ali's like boxing headgear. Uh, they have um, uh, they have images from some of the uh, I think the Cassiopeia um, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 supernova remnant. They like this incredible set of uh, of images. Uh, and so I encourage everyone to check it out, see what you can find. The Smithsonian archive is one of the, the most underutilized, uh, resources. So it's, they say to the public domain, the website is si.edu slash open access. Uh, what exactly are the terms of use for? Oh, I don't know. Images? I haven't looked at the, um, the terms recently. I mean, that's something that, you should do if you're looking to use any of these images for commercial work or personal projects. Uh, so uh, definitely, even though they are, I, I don't, even though the announcement is that it's in the public domain, look look specifically to the rights for each of the pieces. I'm, I'm fair. Yeah, I mean, it it should be on the. They are specifically. If you look at like the bottom left of an image, it'll say. Um, the media is in public domain, free of copyright restrictions. You can copy, modify, and distribute without contacting the Smithsonian. Yeah, but I, I don't, I'm not sure about commercial use. I would think. See, that's, that's where yeah. it can get tricky. Yeah, the, the, you bring up a good point. It's CC0. Which is? It's Creative Commons. So... What's CC0? I don't remember. Okay, so the, on the website, si.edu slash terms of use, uh, Creative Com if it's marked with the Creative Commons Zero icon, then it's made under the Creative Commons Zero license. It's not protected by copyright and may be used for commercial and non-commercial purposes without a fee. However, the CC0 icon only pertains to the copyright status of the content, and so... It doesn't, Smithsonian can't guarantee that all content marked with it is free from 
uh, other rights, rights other than copyright. Like third parties might have rights for privacy or uh, publicity for like people's images. Yeah, because like there's likenesses like, in, exactly. involved in some of this stuff, exactly. like things that you can't copyright. Yeah. I uh, got it. Well, but that's still, that's really it's, great. It's still that really it's great. mostly CC0 stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, last story. Uh, rest in power to Katherine Johnson, the famous NASA mathematician, uh, hero to many, including myself, uh, born in rural West Virginia, uh, grew up uh, to work at NASA, um, and she was uh, best known for uh, confirming some of the mathematical uh, orbits uh, that allowed John Glenn to go into space. He's really famous for saying, uh, let, let me get the quote right from John Glenn. Um, I think it's, he said something to the uh, effect of, um, if she says they're good, uh, then I'm ready to go regarding the calculation she made. Uh, Katherine Johnson's uh, work was highly featured in the film Hidden Figures, where she was instrumental in doing some of the calculations related to the Apollo 11 lander uh, um, uh, reconnecting to the orbiter. Uh, moreover, uh, she her work in mathematics and NASA changed how that entire agency approached who got to do mathematics and how. Um, and she retired in 1986. She worked on uh, all the way through the space shuttle program. Uh, she's a she's a, a hero. She was honored in 2015 with the Medal of Freedom, our highest civilian honor. Uh, and um, she will be a, a legend in in science uh, for the rest of time. So thank you, Catherine. Right. We are ready. The VR Minute. Virtual reality this week. All right. Uh, I don't think that the other guys, Jeremy and Will talked about this last week because I think the news broke after they recorded the podcast. So I'm going to talk about it real quick. Uh, Mobile World Congress was supposed to be this week and HTC was supposed to be there making some announcements. Uh, but they had to issue a press release instead, and they have expanded their Vive Cosmos line. Um, that's the first part of the news. So now the Vive Cosmos is a family of products. Uh, not only do they have the standard Cosmos, right? Uh, there is now the Cosmos Elite, which is a more expensive higher-end package. Pureters are Starting now, it's $900 and basically is the Cosmos with the Vive face, uh, the Steam VR face tracker, Lighthouse tracker fa uh, face, the plate, face plate, uh, as well as your Lighthouse beacons and the old school style Vive wands, not the Cosmos controllers. So huh. that's for, that's, I think it'll be more for LBEs or uh, businesses who want that larger room scale tracking uh, and, and the fidelity of tracking given by the lighthouses. There's also going to be an entry level Cosmos called the Cosmos Play. And uh, it will have four cameras as opposed to six cameras, uh, but otherwise the same as the Cosmos. And it will also let you, if you want to, spend 200 bucks buy the Lighthouse faceplate tracker. Do they announce pricing for the Play yet? Uh, I do not think they announce pricing 
for the play. I'd be careful about what. Yeah, yeah. the press release did not say pricing. And then uh, a future product is the Cosmos XR, uh, which is adds two cameras to the front, which allows for pass through video uh, up to a hundred degree FOV at low latencies at high frame rate, presumably matching the frame rate that you get on the Cosmos in the ninety hertz uh, for. Pass-through applications, so mixed reality kind of stuff. mixed reality stuff. Again, for developers, they probably had, commercial yeah, applications. Yeah. yeah, and they they had some mixed reality stuff built into the first, uh, the Vive Pro. Uh, but this is a, presumably a better camera system. This Different is a pretty cameras. big expansion of the family of products. Yeah, and it's surprising to me because uh, it's sticking to the Cosmos design, which some people love or hate. You know, it, it is what it is. Uh, the the headband. It's for me. There are pros and cons to it. The pro is that you can flip up the the display itself, so you get easy access to your keyboard uh, and looking through without having to take off the headset. But the headband design, I, I'm not as much a fan of that as I have been with, um, and even on the Oculus Rift S, the headband design, not as fan, much fan of that as I like with the deluxe audio head strap that they made, that that Vive, uh, the HTC made, uh, or with the Valve Index head strap. Those are still. I understand more that on a. Me individual level and like a location-based experience or a commercial level i don't think it matters as much i I think it matters definitely for location-based experience for getting the right fit for um for visual quality because a lot of people who if it's their first time putting on a vr headset may put it on and not realize they're not getting the, the, the sweet spot isn't aligned with their eyes and they may think they're getting a clear view but they're not and it's so tough to get a sense of exactly what someone's seeing unless you make the headset easy for them to kind of adjust and, and rotate. I was sort of thinking about it the way like the void does it, where there's somebody that actually kind of yeah, helps puts it on. fit, right, fit right, you. Right, right, right. And that way the flip up actually sort of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because then you can then flip down to enter, mm-hmm. enter VR. Uh, HTC also showed pictures of a prototype that I think they were supposed to have at uh, Mobile World Congress as well. It's called the Vive Photon, Project Photon, and it's looks like it's a rose-tinted... Aren't we conditioned to say rose gold? One, yeah, rose gold, uh, smart glasses, so not VR necessarily, uh, but it's maybe their pass-through... It AR. looks like fancy ski goggles. Like yeah. that that's how it occurs to me with like a back strap behind the head. Yeah. Or uh the second image looks like it has uh that's that's the battery pack. Oh. Damn. I wonder what the weight balance is on that thing then. Yeah. Yeah. So smart classes they're they're working on. Uh but that that's not part of the Cosmos family. That's just um that's just a, a prototype. Um Oh, other big VR news. God, this also could this have been huge. big news. Uh, top story. Facebook announced they've bought Sensaru Games, the makers of not only the VR Sports Challenge and uh, developers of the Marvel fighting game, uh, but also, of course, recently, Asgard's Wrath. Uh, congratulations to those folks. Um, Didn't they make Rip Coil too? Is that game theirs? I think so. I don't I don't remember if, if Rip Coil is theirs. Let me think about this because, on the one hand, Oculus is, such, is still a closed platform, and obviously the stuff they've made in the past were exclusive to the Oculus platform because Oculus paid for that, and so I don't see that changing. But I really hope that, 
I, I think large. It's it's difficult for a, uh, a a VR game developer to make games like Asgard's Wrath for the current VR market, right? Like it's you know, regardless. And, and, and there are reports that over a hundred games, VR games, have sold you know a, a million dollars worth of, of games, and that's that's good. That's that's, but it's not. That's not great. That's though. not great. I like it's it's good, but definitely not great. It's it's moving in the right direction, but it's not where we want VR to be. And in Asgard's Wrath, you know, for how good it was, it's tough to see a developer without financial support and backing be able to make another game of that scope. Um, and I'm still crossing fingers that at some point Facebook and Oculus will open up their Oculus store for other headsets. I think that's kind of like a I hope it's an inevitability because that's kind of at this point needed to grow the VR ecosystem. And yeah, let force people to use the VR Oculus app to download it, but let third-party headsets work just like the way Steam works. And so that's my that's my my crossing my fingers. Hope that they'll make some kind of announcement about that in the future. Um, some decision needs to be made. Uh, but fear here is knowing that the quest has been so successful that. You know, if they're taking an experienced VR developer and, and not only owning them, uh, but directing, presumably, their efforts, would the next game they make be Quest first, desktop VR second? Because regardless of what they make, it's good that they're going to get the funding, get, good that they're going to get to make it. I'm excited to play whatever they make. But I still hope that they're, we don't lose sight of developers who can make things that are desktop first. And then mobile second, especially as mobile comes more powered with next generations of mobile VR headsets. Before they were acquired, had they announced any of the future projects after so. Asgard's wrap? Yeah. And and I'll say that independent developer from Skydance Interactive, The Walking Dead, Saints and Sinners game, is a perfect example of a game that plays great on desktops and was designed for desktops first, but will also come out for, for mobile headsets. Well, there will be a version of it for Quest. Maybe it won't look as good, but that's fine. And I think that that the porting it that way, I'm more in favor of uh, than going the other way. Because if you look at a game like I'm gonna say like Vader Immortal, again, fun to play. I could tell it was designed for Quest first, and you didn't get as big of a bump in in graphics for desktop when you played it with the Rift S, even though it did look better. On, mm-hmm. on the Rift S. So, but I'm glad they're going to be able to continue working on their games. It's the, yet another developer, development house, that Oculus has now acquired and brought in-house. Uh, and, you know, the landscape's going to be different in a month from now once Half-Life Alex is out too. And the user base has definitely, definitely grown. At this point, we only have speculations. I, well, I share your feeling like i hope they don't go quest first or quest only which Mm -hmm. is the real yeah which is the real uh worry here i'm less concerned i feel like they're gonna probably still operate as like an independent studio in terms of like vision for games it's really about platform that's gonna be sure but the platform can be that that could be a directive right and it's funny very much two big oculus exclusive vr games that came out late last year stormland and asgard's wrath both of those developers are now owned by the companies making the VR headsets. Insomniac owned by Sony and Cesaru now owned by Oculus. 
Uh, next story. Uh, oh, actually, this is not in. This isn't shouldn't be in VR, but uh, this should be in gaming. Black Mesa is coming out. This is, we'll go back to technology. Black Mesa, which is the fan made remake of Half Life, um, using new source engine. Uh, it's been early access, but now the final level, uh, the Zen levels, will be uh, released, and it's coming out. Uh, uh, Mid March, right? Mid March, March fifth. Woo! Oh, that's and not like, Mid March. That's a week. They've been working on it for 14 years. Congratulations <laughs> to that team. Now's the time to finally play Half-Life. I mean, it's now great, with everyone... It's a great time to play Half-Life. Yeah, now with everyone getting it for free in Steam. Well, they're going to get Half-Life for free, not Black Mesa. Black no, Mesa, no, I yes. understand. I'm saying it like re... It yes. might be rekindling interest in uh, yeah. in Black Mesa. Yeah, I never... I'm, I'm never not surprised by how obsessed fans are about the Half-Life games and the lore of the Half-Life games. And and there, there definitely is a bigger fan base than I thought for games, for a franchise that has not had a new game in so long. Oh, people are still into it. I'm still freaked out. I think Will was talking about this last week. I'm a little, like, curious with Alex what it's going to be like when uh, the uh, crab things, like, attach to your head. Head crabs get you on the head. I'm freaked out about that. I'm nervous. I mean... It, it's something to be freaked out about. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, Kishore, you can always aim the, the pistol right at the crab and you're on your head and shoot it off. Yeah, I understand how the game works. It's still like going to be freaky in VR. Yeah. Uh, the Room, not the movie, The Room, but the series of puzzle games, The Room VR, um, is coming out with a VR version uh, is coming out. This is a dark matter, and they have a uh, they have a little trailer announcement yeah. teaser. Yes, uh, I love these mobile games. This is this awesome. So this is a series of like iPad games. Uh, there's a version on PC as well, and they're very very popular, very good, well designed puzzles. It, and they have like a a mood and atmosphere that even uh, similar games that have high quality puzzles don't match the atmosphere mm. of this game. Mm. And it's because the atmosphere and the storytelling that I'm excited about the port to VR because there is a lot of movement in and around uh, a room to solve different puzzles. And you oftentimes have to go back and forth. Right. And with the way it was in just a 2d flat model, you would just kind of like maneuver back and forth. So here puzzles, I will say here that it you, could be something you different. Don't actually it's still teleport. You don't actually walk around. Well, I mean, it's fine that it's teleport, but I think VR as a system like yes. actually helps because you can trigger a puzzle over here and something happens over there. So I, I played the first it. level of this at oh, Oculus Connect, uh, and uh, hopefully I will share some footage um, in before release uh, of, of that first level. But uh, one of the coolest things is you can, the, the, the animations for the puzzles themselves, the mechanics are beyond what any real escape room could build because they are building these animated models that are gorgeous uh, but you can trigger something and because you are f in that space in vr you know something can happen and you can turn around and the world will be very different behind you and they can have these kind of you know reality bending things that are tied to and, their uh, escape room puzzles and all the other games usually are just clicking with a mouse to activate yeah. something now like i imagine you're gonna have to like turn yes, the wheel and lots like of interactive rotating of knobs and and dials and uh, and manipulation, physical manipulation of, oh, of objects. I'm, I'm excited about this. Yeah. For any of those missed lovers that are still hopping around. That's right. This is it. Uh, this is it for us. Yeah. Uh, 
Boneworks is now in the Oculus Store, so it was in Steam first, but Stress Level Zero has now brought it to Rift Platform. And they've also, as a bonus level for this, they've recreated the classic VR level Tuscany. Oh, that's Remember cool. the Tuscany map mm-hmm. in VR? Yeah, so you can check that out. Uh, and um, on Rec Room, The Curse of the Crimson Cauldron is now a quest that's on Oculus Quest. We beat that, you, me, and yeah. Jeremy, right? We did. That was great. Yeah. Oh, it's now, um, it should be on Quest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it for VR Minute, because we are already at two hours, and we still need to go into our final segment. I completely forgot we were doing this. I forgot we had, like, a, um, there was a new bumper for it, and I misplaced it. Oh, no. All right, so we're going to give you a second. We're going to talk, of course, about Star Trek Picard, episode five, which has been out for a week already. So please watch the episode before listening, continuing on. Every week, as we've been doing for the past five weeks, we'll be discussing in detail our thoughts, impressions, spoilers, connections of Star Trek Picard. Last week, presumably, Jeremy and Will talked about episode four, which... Uh, we weren't here. You and I weren't here to talk about Kishore, but I really enjoyed episode four. I thought it was mostly good. It was the first episode directed by Jonathan Frakes. Mm-hmm. It definitely had a, a great polish to it. Uh, and we got a recommendation from one of you out there that before we dive into just the uh, impressions, we're going to give a kind of a, a recap of what happened in the episode to refresh your memory if it's been a week oh, since you've seen it. I got the bumper. You got the bumper? Let's play Ready? the bumper. Make it so. Red alert! Picard. Spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. I've lost contact, sir. What? Engage. Picard. Make it so. Oh, wait. I hit it again. Sorry. All right. We should start with a recap of uh, this week's episode. So last week ended with the appearance of Seven of Nine. Uh, and her ship was destroyed. She saved the, uh, the crew, Picard and the ship on, on board. Uh, what's the name of the ship? Uh, the, um, La Serena. Yes. La Serena. That's what it is. And, uh, they were, that's right. They were escaping this Romulan refugee planet and there was an old bird of prey attacking them. And, uh, she was beamed aboard and that's where the cliffhanger held. In this episode, we open with a flashback to, I believe, 13 years ago to what Seven and Nine has been doing since returning to the Alpha Quadrant after the events of Voyager. Well, she's kind of a... She's a ranger, a as they're ranger. called. Like uh, a and she's a freelance vigilante. She's a vigilante in the old demilitarized zone trying to maintain peace and order. Yes, and in that so flashback... Curious. She... Goes to an installation where Borg, ex-Borg, are being captured and harvested for their parts. And she tries to save, but fails to save, Echeb. Echeb from Star Trek Voyager. When this happened, I lost my shit. This was intense. I screamed, Echeb. Uh, and uh, Seven of Nine has to mercy kill Echeb oh after breaking in and killing the... Poor um, Echeb! Uh, the villains there. Um, and then, so she joins Picard, uh, and the crew to free cloud where they're looking for Bruce Maddox. Of course, Bruce Maddox was the one who, uh, created the, uh, Android twins, uh, Maj and, and Dodge, uh, Dodge and, and Soji. Soji. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, 
And they encounter a essentially like a mob boss woman. Yes. So the, the story is that they found that uh, Bruce Maddox has been captured by this uh, this mob boss woman, uh, Bajazi, and they're going to trade him to the Tal Shiar, but they want to intercept that trade by offering seven of nine, and then so they have a standoff, and they are able to uh, through force uh, manipulation and deceit, they are able to uh, over uh, overwhelm uh, the mob there on Free Cloud and get Bruce Maddox back on the ship, and then Bruce Maddox is killed by uh, the doctor who Gerardi yes who was revealed Agnes. to have a relationship she was in a relationship with, with Bruce, Bruce Maddox. Maddox yeah uh, it's also revealed that seven of nine uh, wants to kill the mob boss uh, because she's the one that was leading the harvesting of drone parts That's that right. led to each of and death. then she does kill her at the end dual Phaser dual blasters, leading. dual wielding, phasers akimbo, uh, but it may not be the last we see of her. And then Picard moves on. There's also a really horrible subplot involving Rafi and her son uh, being um, estranged, estranged, and, and trying to reconnect with and, her son on Free Cloud, and her son being on Free Cloud trying to have a baby via like space IVF. That's right, Star yeah. IVF. Yeah, on, on 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 a pleasure planet, presumably oh on, a, on a gambling planet, a Free Cloud. Okay, general thoughts on the episode. All right, so for a fan service fan servicey episode, I did not feel serviced enough. Um, I really I was glad to see Jerry Ryan. I was very looking forward to Jerry Ryan's appearance on this show, not just because it's a familiar character, but because of the possible connections. Um, and I don't feel like we had that really explored. Um, we heard through interviews that while uh, Seven of Nine and Picard know of each other, they didn't actually know each other. This was the first time they met in person. They had reputations, uh, which is an interesting way to take about it, to, to go about it. And so you, I was excited to see a relationship between them develop because they are both famously ex-Borg. One assimilated as a child, one assimilated as an adult. And we did get the most, the smallest bit of that and probably the best moment of the show when uh, she departs the ship and they have this moment where about where she asks him, you know, when he came back from the cutest, did he ever regain his humanity? And he says no, but it's something they're working on. And in that wonderful wonderful moment you had this the score actually play the voyager theme and so really that was that the was best the moment best of the moment show. of the show and there wasn't enough of that nor did it really feel like that moment was even earned because her purpose on the show is really still a mystery like she was really just it could have been any character any any guest role it almost just felt like stunt casting to bring her in to be the antagonist for this mob boss lady who i will say as an aside looks just like marina sirtis circa 20 years ago to a point that it confused both danica and me as like is this a clone what what did they do de-aging uh the jay-z on this character and so i'm not saying it's bad casting but it definitely was a little bit confusing. And I did appreciate for the fan service parts, the opening with each I did think it was misedited in that they ruined that as the 
as the connection, which took away the emotional payoff. You had this whole monologue that Seven talks about Icha being the closest she had to family, basically her adopted son. And if it was revealed later on the episode that it was Icha that dies, I feel like that would have landed better. Yeah, they should to, have layered that that story throughout. To open that as the opening thing, they could have shown, you know, someone having their eye plucked out. Uh, I think that they 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 didn't need to really reveal that it was Ichab or the mercy killing in the opening scene. Although there was a nice flashback or a callback to an episode of Voyager because when Ichab is being dissected, essentially, uh, one of the, uh, the doctors goes, where's your cortical node? Uh, and, and then they try to drill in his head. And as anyone who's watched Star Trek Voyager knows, Ichab does not have a cortical node because he donated his to Seven of Nine as hers failed and it's not a part that you can replicate. And Borg need that to maintain the functions of Borg parts. So uh, this set up, uh, especially from the trailer, as a classic Star Trek away mission episode. It was right? like a down bunch to the of costumes down to the, the characters. And I thought they would have more fun with it. Yeah. I didn't feel that they, uh, they, they started hitting the beats where they're like assembling everyone. Everyone has a role. There's some like concern about certain people having, being able to do stuff like the doctor had to essentially, uh, I stop calling her doctor. Like the scientist had to, um, be in charge of transporting them yes. off. And she's like, I've never done that before. Like all that kind of right. typical beats. And then it just all starts to crumble apart. It was cringeworthy so at there's, times. There's two competing stories. So first of all, there's an open question. We're five episodes in. We still don't understand why everyone is trying to harvest Borg technology. Yep. Just explain it because I don't think it's central to the story. I am sorry to assume they it. need a throwaway line about the artifact and, and, and like and it'll it's, be something like value. romulans need like a source of materials to rebuild their sure whatever again that throwaway line would 100 service that just but, like do that two uh is is this whole idea of there being people with very differing uh sets of motivations embedded in the crew that's fine. Okay. That's also classic Star Trek that we have uh, people with different motivations and usually one turns. They have now changed that dynamic by having everyone have separate motivations. Yeah. And it makes it really hard to stick with the story. So if this was the story of seven of nine, having a mo different motivation, setting it up in an interesting storytelling way. And that was it. And the anchor was that moment Picard and her had together. Uh, that would have been a good episode. But by confusing it by having the scientists and Bruce Maddox yep. layered on top of it, it just made this muddled and uh, like I didn't understand what was going on. And we had basically built a season so far to get to Bruce Maddox. And then they kill him off. And they kill him. They kill him off. They, and, and also, it was an episode where they didn't bring back either the original actors for Echeb or Bruce Maddox. And that threw me off a little bit because I was looking forward to That wasn't to the original them. actor for no. Echeb? No, no, it wasn't. I mean, we yeah. only saw him in these kind of like sideways sure. shots. So. Uh, and then it was, you know, going back to how they filmed Mandalorian, it felt like an episode that really could have taken advantage of some stagecraft work because the bar they were in on Free Kyle just looked at like an empty soundstage with rafters and like generic lights that it was just such an empty set of a space. You know, you had this opportunity for Picard to, to lean into one of the attributes that we love, his love of role playing when he went on away missions, you know, the whole, uh, uh Dixon Hill stuff. Mm -hmm. None of that. You had like the flair, but none of the cleverness of it, you know, him like 
he just looked bewildered and and, and you had no commanding presence we had whatsoever one, one moment so he's in this ridiculous french accent and it's over the top and it's fine yeah. right and he has this moment when seven reveals like her motivation and he goes he said something to the effect of like we're all finally revealing ourselves to each other it seems something like that mm-hmm. and i was like oh right there that's your moment like keep going keep going there that's like an interesting place got muddled he was just a bystander and he was just being muddy at the end it didn't feel like yeah he was just i hated the fact that he was just a bystander in that episode i mean this is weird to say but my big problem is that his whole crew are a bunch of fucking whiners like that have all these other motivations there's only the like one person that has appeared pure quote unquote so far and that's rios so the rios thing was also interesting because there are a lot of fan theories uh about who rios is and one like of the prevailing kids what no 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 the the, the prevailing theory is that he's a ema or a, he's a hologram as well he's a command hologram oh. uh which is isn't so the other holograms on the ship aren't uh, versions of or aren't that's clones of him, but that he is just another one of them, and that's why you have him reading like existential books about death. Um, and there are things about him like saying lines like "I block that from my memory" or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Like legitimate. I, I, I love that because you have the idea of synthetic, synthetic life, and that being a big theme of the show. And then you then you also have the opportunity to bring back the EMH, and maybe if if Seven Nine's there, you know her. The t- the person she spent the most time with, the character she spent the most time with in Voyager was the doctor, a hologram also trying to find its own purpose and individuality. And so she would be the one, you know, what a great way, for, an opportunity for her to be the one to like, ha, realize, like, recognize that immediately. This is just another, like the doctor, yeah. but keep that a secret, um, you know, a way to tie in the themes of, of Voyager and her character arc. Instead, you have this whole kind of, nothing about her felt like seven of nine, right? But that, that we saw, it's just, it could have been a token guest, guest role uh, until the moment they talked about, again, both being ex Borg. That part disappointed me a lot. They should um, have opened up the script, control F, Rafi, Delete. Right. Delete the all. The Rafi character is such, so, such a derivative story of like the estranged mother who was on drugs and, 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 uh, and deep in a we, cons- you know, No earned backstory yeah, yeah. for that kind of conversation. No earned backstory for her and Picard. No relationship. Like he shows so much trust and deference to her. Not earned. Not explained. Like she You're is. You're so bummed about this JL business. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm mad about JL. Um, so all of these things, like her c- entire character is unearned. Yeah. And so she feels like a drag to every scene she's in. And it's not about the acting. It's just about the the narrative around her. Rios feels earned. Um, like he's he's. A I would grumpy. watch a show about him. Yeah. Totally earned. Scientist, like fine. I has guess, a, diff- yeah. a different motivation. Seven of nine, not totally earned the way it was set up. Um, Hopefully, I I think the idea is that she'll be in more episodes. That's the hope. She gave Picard a calling card, a business card at the end. You don't do that without coming back later on. And I think she's supposed to have scenes with Hugh uh, on on the show. So everyone is mad at Picard and betraying him. And that's the thing that makes the show really hard. I'm fine with a disillusioned Picard. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with a world that's different than what it was before. I expect those things. But 
I can't stomach that he has changed so dramatically that people have lost faith in him. And yes, that's why I, I like those Romulan characters on Earth, his body. Absolutely. Guards. I think that the show, if it's about uh, the world changing, you don't need to show how bad of a place the world and the galaxy is uh, in every character. You know, Star Trek should be about optimism at, at its core. And, you know, if we would like to see one theme of this show about Picard finding that optimism again, optimism again and people finding it in him and looking to him for leadership because leadership is one of his defining characteristics and we don't see it just yet. Mm-hmm. I will say we have, we have a, essentially an elf on the show and we have a ranger now. So they're going to look for a dwarf next. Maybe it is quite a fellowship. Uh, also for fan service, the one shot they had of free cloud, you spot that quarks bar. No, was there, really? as well as Mott's Mott's, oh. t- uh, a barbershop. Barbershop. Yeah. Oh, wow. We're, we're little, uh, Easter eggs there. Uh, and for those of you who live in Los Angeles, that was clearly shot on the universal city walk. <laughs> in that little shopping area and they just kind of uh, put some CG effects over it to make it look a little Blade Runner-y. Um, but again, it's one of those shows that could have used some stagecrafting to, to bring more of the world building in. Uh, talk us back from the edge if you're having a good uh, experience with it because I'm on a downslope right now with the show. I really hope it turns a corner. It's showing bits of possibility, but we're at the point now where it really needs to ramp up in this fin- in this back half. We're halfway through. Yeah, yeah, I know. Wow. Oh, all right. That does it for our discussion of Picard this week, as well as the episode. Uh, I think we're all in. Anything coming up on uh, Tested? Um, There's a one-day build. There's a one-day build. Yep, you guys should check that out. Adam put together. It's actually a really, really fun build where he uh, turned his dinosaur skull, uh, T-Rex skull, into a pool table light uh, in a quick and dirty build. Uh, And there will be... Well, there's another visit to the set of Hamilton, uh, the stage of Hamilton, in which uh, Adam chats with one of the actors as well as goes backstage into the uh, makeup and wig room. Uh, And... Uh, Adam's going to be at C2E2 this week, so there might be some content that was made relevant to those visits. Awesome. Uh, the spot stuff has been great so far. Yes, it we just are. Like a test we, are we are working on the next project. Uh, if you are hearing this in the past, I don't know. I'm talking to Brian Green, the f- uh, physicist tonight uh, in San Jose. I think there's still a few tickets available uh, to that, uh, but that'll be fun. We're talking about uh, all of eternity. And, uh, you know, heat death of the universe. So it'll be an uplifting conversation uh, compared to coronavirus. Uh, But uh, I think that's it for us, right? We got an outro from the one, the only, Wohawk. Let's hear it. I said... Hi there, I didn't see you. Okay, so now this is one of my favorite tools. This is a Japanese woodworker saw. I've got about five of them. Uh, it's a gorgeous tool. Are for different different types of cuts. Um, the thing that's remarkable about these saws is one, their fineness. They're incredibly thin. So the kerf, and that is the width of the cut that they make, is incredibly thin. You have your heavy optimal ratio. Right. The, right, right, right. You have your heavy optimal ratio. Right. The, right, right, right. right, right you have your heavy optimal ratio. Right. The, right, 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 right. Oh, 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 oh.
got to be like a seven or six year old video that was pulled from really we're talking about watch japanese band saws or japanese pull saws i think i i saw him using one recently oh he did use one recently he used one with his goya uh bean uh leg uh or uh, the, oh yeah the, the can of beans the, the yeah, yeah. yes yes yeah <laughs> that was oh. epic thanks wilhawk bye